Your journey continues on the enigmatic episode 100 spectacular of So Many Insane Plays. Next, let's talk about Phantasmal Forces. So, (laughs) 3U for a 4-1 flyer that says, simply, flying, controller must spend U during upkeep to maintain or phantasmal forces are destroyed. <laughs> yeah. Now there's a lot of great things to yeah to to point to in that that brief wording there. The first of course is that it's um uh it has a U, a literal capital U instead <laughs> of a blue mana symbol, like like the force of nature, right? Which is cool. There's not too many cards in Alpha that have that quirk, which was then subsequently fixed for beta. And there's the uh, during upkeep language, right? Which we've discussed many times already is mm-hmm. ambiguous and could refer yep. to every upkeep. And then there's the fact that it clearly says destroyed, which in the modern Oracle wording has been changed uh, to sacrifice. So you, you could regenerate. make a case that this card has been depowered significantly. Yeah, you could be able to regenerate or indestructible from that. Also, in Alpha, this card is the summon Phantasm which is a pretty sweet creature type. And I don't know how many other phantasms there were because it's not the sort of thing I can easily search for. I know that phantom monster, which is coming up in a minute is summoned phantasm. Sorry. It's summoned phantasm also. So there was this, this theme of phantasms as a type for blue, at least a small theme in alpha. And you know that small themes are themes in alpha. Two cards is a theme. (laughs) Can you think of any other yeah, I know. Can you think of any other phantasms? No, I didn't even notice that these were summoned phantasms. In Alpha or in Magic? Yeah. That's a very top-down kind of uh, D&D sort of type. I'm not familiar with phantasms and their their right. specific lore in D&D, but I can tell you that that's the impetus for that. And I'm just quickly scanning the blue creatures in Alpha visually, and it appears that shapeshifters and elementals are the are the name of the, the common types in general. So, no, Phantasm appears to be just these two, and we'll review the second one here in a minute. That's an interesting feature of this card to me, too. But uh, So, this is another uncommon, and while it doesn't have nearly the cachet of a Sankersera Air Elemental kind of part of the uncommons, this is still a very potent card in the uncommon flyers cycle. And because it's 4-1, it obviously tussles very well with the other good uncommons, too. Uh, so I think that this card is probably a little better than history has shown it to be. You know, I think its PR is a little bad, but this is the sort of card where I I genuinely put this in a I genuinely put this in a couple of decks when I had them uh, when I was young and was pretty pleased by the result because it comes out a turn earlier than the other. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, we're going to review Phantom Monster in a moment, but both of these cards are beefy for Alpha and have evasion, which means that mm-hmm. they are real onboard mm-hmm. threats. I think. I think it's interesting to to try and factor in upkeep cost cards, especially those that are not. So there's two types. There's the kind of you know minimal upkeep card like this, and Junin Junin Afrit and yeah. and Arabian Nights is a little more than this. But then there's like the massive upkeep cards that we've covered, Lord of the Pit. Uh, <laughs> right. Th- those are of a different class entirely. Demonic Chords, uh Force of Nature. Force of right? Nature. Yeah, where the penalty is also intended to be meaningfully right. different, like with force and I think and it's Lord. difficult to figure out how to weigh that upkeep cost. I think, you know, and situationally, the situations just so are so varied. You know, when you're trying to curve out, it's mm-hmm. very disruptive, which is why Junin of Freet <laughs> has never really seen any play. This card has seen play, though. I think this card is better 
in that respect, partly because a Jun and a Freak can be played out with a Dark Ritual, but then you have to pay, you have to pay the upkeep, you know? Right. Um, right. No, I think this card is interesting. I think it's, it's, you know, one of the kinds of cards that can be very effective and do a lot, a lot of damage fairly quickly, but it's also incredibly vulnerable. Yeah, completely agree. Although it, it still does a decent job of trading in combat, which when it, when you factor in the, the mana cost of the upkeep, trading in combat is actually a pretty attractive option, right? Especially since you're, in a lot of cases, looking to trade up for a five-mana creature in some cases, uh, especially when you're tussling in the air, and that's just a that's just a good deal for you. Yeah, I think Phantom Monster, it suff- uh, sorry, Phantasmal Forces suffers a lot from just the <laughs> the breadth of five mana, four, four flyers and larger that we had access to in Alpha. It's a little bit of a shame in that regard. Uh, we should point out that this is uh, yet another uh, incredible oh, Mark yes. Poole art. He happens, he happens to have a lot of uh, the flying aspects in the early game, right? The birds, the island sanctuary, the jump, and in this case, the forces. The There's a lot of detail here this kind of harkens in the, my short memory of just the set review back to say holy armor in terms of the amount of detail here because there's a lot of individually rendered wing uh, feathers on wings here in these forces and i think that's pretty cool it's, it's some of these it's yeah n- now that I look at well, this it's just in terms ahead. of artistic skill and rendering there is some <laughs> there's some real range here like sometimes like mark pool and others just put in some phenomenal pieces and this is one of them now other times they're more mediocre yeah. this is a phenomenal piece. yeah yeah as i look at this up close i really am starting to think that maybe i should pick one of these up just to have a signed copy uh once we're in the business of being in person with mark pool again that's pretty cool uh, i should note that the gamma this is basically the same card in gamma except it's a four four which is noteworthy i think that there must have been some testing that revealed in Gamma that the upkeep did not quite offset the the penalty of having this be the same size and stats as an air elemental. And so they dialed it back, which I find interesting. Not too many examples of that in, in Gamma, between Gamma and Alpha. We're going to talk about some similar concepts with Phantom Monster. So let's get to, let's move on. But before we get to Phantom Monster, we have <laughs> to talk about Phantasmal <laughs> Terrain. So, Phantasmal Terrain is a fun one. Uh, it, this it, We're going to talk a little bit about the nature of color hosers versus just quirky effects, of really, of sorts. But Phantasmal Terrain is an enchant land. Target land changes to any basic land type of caster's choice. Land type is set when cast and may not be further altered by this enchantment. So, it's a, it's a one-target mana disruption effect... But as we discussed with with respect to Merfolk just a few minutes ago, and and the the Lord that this is basically the the precursor to spreading yeah. seas, because I I mean I I played this card a couple of times in the early days. It was a good way to disrupt people's mana in blue before I had a bunch of strip mines at my disposal. And the the simple truth is is that you almost want, always wanted to choose island because unless you were playing with a if you were playing with a limited card pool in the limited environment in days, you frequently just had natural upside to having your opponent have islands. Maybe it was Island Walk. Maybe it was uh, you know, the Serpent that we're going to review later on, that kind of thing. But So this is really, in my opinion, mostly spreading seas, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you have more flexibility here. And I find it interesting that 
the alpha the alpha version says that the type is set when cast now i know what they were trying to say with that statement basically that it doesn't change over time right so you're changing it one time but i do find it interesting that they fell back on the phrase when cast because that suggests that when you announce this you choose the creature the, the sorry the the land type and that's obviously not the case anymore yeah they as it comes into play versus when it comes into play is a very a very subtle nuance <laughs> that's true the oracle wording is now as and so there's there's no point at which you know what type it's turning into and you have an opportunity to respond yeah steve i don't think uh, you've never spoken about this card. Is this card a player in any of the, the alpha-based or old-school-based well, formats well, you uh, participate it's in? It's interesting. I think we did mention earlier, you made the point that there was a... Before, I, you had made the point that there was this kind of effect was used in, what was it, like a merfolk deck to try and guarantee Island Walk. Um, mm-hmm, I can't mm-hmm. say that I've seen this, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is. It's There's a duality to this kind of card, right? On the one hand, it can... It, which is what, what makes it such a great design is that you can use it as a disruptive kind of sinkhole type effect, right? To to take out mm-hmm. an opponent's mana source or turn it into a le- far less useful mana source, like a dual land into a swamp or something, right? So it's kind of like the blue sinkhole. But the right. other point is that you can use it strategically for things like you know Island Walk or Karma or whatever the case may be. So um, I think mm-hmm. there's a a, a a decent scope for application. You know, for this card in Alpha, I have not personally seen it used, but I wouldn't surprise. I mean, I see people play cards like Slide of Mind, uh, Slide of Mind, which means that presumably this card has you know, utility. Um, no, but I haven't directly seen people play with this card. Have you seen? I mean, look, the lineage of this card, the you know, is strong enough to suggest that it could be constructed playable, right? Well, in what context are you referring to? Well, that it's descendants, you mean, like that Alpha it's descendants. League? You know that that the effect is powerful enough, even without the cantrip. That yeah, Th- this th- there isn't kind of an odd lineage, at least within blue, uh, for this kind of effect because uh, it it went through a couple of different permutations, right? Like I think the next version of this effect that follows directly in this line was the card Jinx from Alpha, which is just an in- instant that says target land becomes a basic land type of your choice until end of turn, and it's a cantrip, right? So they were clearly experimenting with cantrips at that point and different kinds of effects they wanted to tag them onto. But then there was a period in the invasion era where blue repeatedly got this kind of effect, where blue got creatures that would just had a tap ability. Target land becomes the basic land type of your choice until end of turn. It's not permanent, but that effect existed in blue all the way up to god what's the most recent printing of that all the way up to um I guess I guess it was conspiracy uh lorwin i don't know it's it's sorry when was this card grixis illusionist was printed first in conflux that's that's the most recent i guess new printing of a blue card that says target land you control becomes a basic land type of your choice until end of turn that's just you control so this effect has been kind of bandied about in blue but it's mostly not permanent anymore and that's the real difference, I would say, is blue has t- a lot of temporary controls still on the nature of things, both creature types and creature copies, right? But this mo- most recently, this effect has fallen out of blue because of its, disrupt- its purely disruptive nature. The-, the-, the most maximal flexibility version, I guess, is what I'm talking about. You know, Spreading Seas is in modern, but that- it's been a long time since that card was printed. And blue does not get this kind of thing as a disruptive element anymore. 
there's another aspect too to your observation, which is in a pinch, this card is also mana fixing, right? Because if you're in a two color deck and you've drawn only your islands, right? You can play this on one of your own lands and turn it into whatever your other color right. is. Right. That's a very good point. And yeah. I, I, yeah, and I think that's a, a hidden aspect of this that speaks to <laughs> the inherent flexibility of manipulating types and colors in blue. That is, I don't know if I would go so far as to call it emergent gameplay exactly, but the simple truth is, is that it actually gives blue more power than I think it should Here's have from a color pie that, standpoint. <laughs> Suppose your opponent has a, um, an if biffa free. You could, turn mm. one of your lands into a forest to activate it. You know, that kind of just very situational yeah. tactical applications make Phantasmal Terrain, I think from a design standpoint, a very interesting card. Yeah, I think looks like the most recent printing of this kind of effect is still a temporary one. Navigator's Compass was printed in Dominaria, which is an artifact that has the activated ability to transform a land until end of turn. But the permanent transformation, I can't quite place what the most recent example of that really is, the kind that, are, that last forever. It's definitely fallen out of blue, though. This is definitely more of a green effect now. Green definitely has uh, multiple enchantments. Like, I mean, you don't have to look very far. Uh, I guess in green, uh, Dryad of the Elysian Grove, still a pretty recent example that just turns all your lands into all the land types. All right, I think we can move on, as we said, from Phantasmal Terrain to Phantom Monster. Phantom Monster in the lineage of Phantasmal Forces is much simpler, though. 3U for a 3-3 flyer, no other text, summon Phantasm, as we said. This one is also an uncommon and definitely, definitely suffers from the the other creatures in the super cycle of 5-mana 4-4 flyers. While I did play some Phantom Monsters, and it's a total beating in Limited, it's a very good card in Limited, um, the simple truth is that when you compare across the whole set, this one really suffers by relative positioning. Explain. Well, just that yeah. at uncommon, you're choosing, you know, you're choosing amongst other uncommons in general with your card pool. And so it, the direct comparisons, even within blue, are Phantasmal Forces and Air Elemental, right? At which point it doesn't take much experience with the game to understand that Air Elemental yeah. is the far superior card. And then you find yourself matching up against other colors and other decks in your opponents, and you get compared then to the Saras and the Sengers of the world. And then you have to factor in the fact that this card compares unfavorably to Giant Spider <laughs> because Giant Spider yeah. blocks it indefinitely, whereas the other four power ones yeah. get to kill the spider. And this card compares unfavorably to Juggernaut. Lightning Bolt, which, while not yeah, well, and Juggernaut, while not the only um, Bolt's not obviously not the only removal in the format, and and several others like Terror and Plow take care of everything. Opening yourself up to being weak to a, a one mana removal spell like that just is another uh, mark against this. Most other creatures in, in this super cycle require lightning bolt plus a blocker or lightning bolt plus another spell to take them down. So Phantom uh, Monster is a fine card and was re has re been, re been reprinted a number of times because it is a fine card. How many times? And it's a good us, place on a curve for a 4-mana 3-3 flyer. Well, it depends on how you count d uh, digital products, but if you're talking about... Um, just paper printings 12 times is the answer. Wow. Um, and that includes a couple of foreign variants. Yeah, I mean, it was in ABU and 4th, and then how did, how far did it live? It was in 5th edition, and then that's it. So up till 5th edition, but then it's re been reprinted in a couple of reprint sets like EMA and Iconic Masters. Oh, and by the way, it's been downshifted to common in its last two reprints. That tells you something as well. So in general, I can tell you that uh, 
as a kid, I, I definitely played some Phantom Monsters, but that's just because I didn't have like full four ofs necessarily in the early days of Air Elementals, Air Elementals and Sangers and Sarahs. But I, I do remember even back as a kid being really disappointed not being able to attack into my opponent's <laughs> Sarah Phantom Monster. With my Phantom Monster. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, and Sarah's oh, vigilance, yeah. you know, yeah. plays double in that equation. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think, you know, look, at the beginning yeah. of this podcast, I made the observation that uncommons threaded throughout this set play a prominent role. And we did compare, you know, a number of them. I think Phantom Monster is not quite as bad as you're making it out to be. I think it's a, the efficiency does give you a bit of a trade off at that spot. Because you can, mm-hmm. you know, at four, you can bring this down before your opponent gets to five. And then you can have counter magic up open when they hit five. You know, that's a, to, 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 to basically prevent them from curving out above you to maintain that slight tempo efficiency advantage. And I, and I think that's something that yeah. this card does that actually the Phantom Forces doesn't because of that, that little upkeep button here. Here you True. get full, mac, you know, maximum use of your resources. So I think this card is a little better than you're giving it credit for, especially being in blue, which gives you a lot of flexibility as a color. But I understand. I understand what you're saying. <laughs> Those are legitimate concerns. <sighs> well, yeah. I, I also this is Jeff Jesper Mirfor's art, and I genuinely like how well phantasmal <laughs> this is, right? <laughs> It's got this this hazy kind of mysterious yet clearly menacing and oozing and amorphous. It's just fantastic. It kind of kind of hits on all cylinders in terms it of really, a phantom it, monster. It really does. It's like looks like something out of a kind of ethereal dimension. It's pretty abstract and yeah. satisfying at the same time. Oh, and it has um, in the alpha version and subsequently. How far does it last? Alpha, beta, unlimited. Oh, quite a while. Yeah, it looks like through all of its early printings up till fourth edition, at least, it has an Edgar Allan Poe quote from the Haunted Palace, which says, While like a ghastly rapid river through the pale door, a hideous throng rush out forever and laugh, but smile no more. Mm. It's pretty fantastic. Nice. A hideous throng. Yeah, it's a hideous throng. All right. <laughs> all right, let's move on. Oh, wait, let me look. Let me check out the uh, the gamma for Phantom Monsters. So. Let's see. Uh, it, it entirely unchanged. Four mana, three three flyer for Gamma Phantom Monster. All right, let us move on then to Pirate Ship. Four consecutive blue cards, three of which are creatures at, and this one is at rare though. So Pirate Ship is a really interesting one. We've already teased it a little bit. For you, summon ship. It's a four three. Tap to do one damage to any target. Cannot attack unless opponent has islands in play. Though controller may still tap, pirate ship is destroyed immediately <laughs> if at any time controller has no islands. This in card play. is so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it <laughs> suffers from so many f- fatal flaws that that would that would kill any single you know any single one of them would kill another card. But to have the cumulative flaws, it's just breath mind boggling. I yeah, I really agree. It's clearly trying to be a top down design, but I genuinely think they missed the mark. Uh, no pun intended, because they're trying to evoke the fact that this ship both needs the water, you know, it requires the water to, that's why the island home part comes in, but the the direct damage is, I believe, trying to evoke the weaponry of a pirate ship, you know, the cannons, but the notion that you can't attack with it and fire the cannons at once, I think they got it exactly wrong. It should be the reverse. It should be when this attacks, it does a damage to any target or a damage to one of their creatures, right? 
it that would be more evocative of them firing the cannons in my opinion but instead you've got this unfortunate strategic choice of do i do one damage to their banalish hero or do i attack them for four and that's assuming they have an island right from my phantasmal terrain so yeah i think this card is generally speaking a failure of design but maybe not for the reasons you think. Yeah, this card, so far as I can see, wasn't even in Gamma. So it was probably a late addition to the set. It's a rare, too. Not a very oh, yeah. popular rare at that. I just think that there, the cards, it's interesting. <laughs> you don't have this in any of the other colors, this kind of like requirement that you need to have blue. You know, have an island in play, you know, to either attack or to maintain it, keep it in play. <laughs> um, right. Now that's just it's just interesting that I mean obviously it's it's very top down as you say right that you would need islands in order to maintain a yeah. pirate ship you can't uh, beach a ship and expect to be able to use it um, on land or in a forest um, but the, everything about this card is odd the casting cost is weird the power and toughness is odd the ability is odd and the conditionality it's just I don't even know what to make of it I mean it's also got the it's got the double conditionality <laughs> for the islands right can't attack and then also yes. is destroyed if you don't control. Just, just interesting. Totally top down. Well, I didn't realize because I haven't studied this kind of thing much recently, but there was a time period when this ability of being tied to an island was briefly keyworded as island home. And so the, it was somewhere around fifth edition because the fifth edition printing of pirate ship, the text box is just island home. And then it has the tap ability. And Island Home is, 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 has the reminder text, which says, if defending pl- player controls no islands, this creature cannot attack. If you control no islands, bury this creature. So they took this ability from this created in alpha and keyworded it at one point and then undid that. Because now they, they pulled it out into two separate sentences on all the cards that for a while had Island Home. This goes for famous things like Dan Dan, right? <laughs> Dan Dan was originally printed with all this same ability. I mean, the same Island Home abilities. And then the fifth edition printing of Dan Dan, just the text boxes are just a single word, <laughs> which is Island Home. And then they reprinted Dan Dan again in Time Spiral and teased that, that keyword out again into two sentences, which I find really interesting. So Island Home as a concept was really imprinted in my brain many years ago, but doesn't actually exist in the game anymore. Well, I guess they give, they take, you know, some, some keyword mechanics yeah. just don't survive kevin they don't <laughs> they don't they don't thrive long <laughs> enough to you know endure to keep keep them around plus i mean who's going to design that anymore there yeah yeah well the uh, one thing i like about pirate ship is that it inspired in my opinion two of the awesomer cards in arabian nights and those well i guess technically three it inspired three awesome cards in arabian nights one is merchant ship which is a simpler, lower-powered version that's still also a ship, which is cool. The other is Island Fish Jasconius, which we're not going to, re- which we reviewed in our you know Arabian <laughs> yeah. set, obviously, but is is really kind of the pinnacle of blue creatures representing, uh, you know, mis being misattributed as land yeah. masses, <laughs> which is really cool. And then, of course, Dan Dan, which I love. So I think I consider Pirate Ship to be a little a bit of a precursor to all three of those cards. Also, of course, Skeleton Ship, which is a, a favorite of mine and is really from Ice Age, which is definitely an homage to Pirate Ship. Yeah, this island home ability as established in Alpha exists on Pirate Ship and Sea Serpent. And then, as I just said, was used on three cards in Arabian Nights. So it was kind of a right. It was kind of a big deal. In the but early it doesn't days of the exist game. on any other 
non-blue cards in Alpha. Island, a land home, rather. You know, which, right, again, right. it's very much a top-down mechanic. But, I, I mean, if you think about it, Let you me... know, aren't there creatures that can't live outside of the swamp? They would need to be in the swamp to attack? Or creatures that need to stay in the forest, right? They can't go up into a mountain? I mean, I don't know. Well, so there, I'm, I'm doing a quick review. There are no creatures, in fact, there are no cards in Magic that have the phrase, when you control no mountain. So mountain home is not a thing. But there are two for swamp. And one of them is a straight color shift of Sea Serpent, which is Bog Serpent in Planar Chaos. It's just Sea Serpent in black. There's one other card, which is Barbarian Outcast from Torment, which is just a two-mana 2-2 in red that says when you control no swamps, sacrifice it. So there's a red creature that has Swamp Home, which is wild. There is no card that says when you control no planes, and... There is one card that says when you control no forest. That's Gorilla Pack from Ice Age. So there are a dozen cards with Island Home, two for swamps, one for forests. And that's it. Wow. Definitely a well, blue specific thing. I do agree that there should probably be more examples of that for the other biomes because, I mean, I, it only makes sense. Obviously, there are fish that have to live in the water, but... Um, other than that, it does make sense that ships couldn't survive without the water. Right. At least they shouldn't be able to attack. But there, there have to be, you're right, other, other creature types, other just life forms that require a swamp or require a mountain to survive. It would only make sense. So next up, Steve, we have a card that I know oh, you're yes. going to want to talk about, and that's Plague Rats. So for 2B, you get Summon Rats. It's an XX. The Xs below are the number of Plague Rats in play, counting both sides. Thus, if there are two Plague Rats in play, each has power and toughness 2-2. It's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, once again, assuming there are only two players in the game, so that's one of those quirks of Alpha. <laughs> that's true. And a little bit of strategic advice there, right? But, uh, but I know, Steve, that you have a bit of a soft spot for Plague Rats due to Alpha Card 40 and some of the things that we on this show have talked about in the past about commons-based... Yeah you know, linear archetypes, well, the, which is, I think, awesome. Point, Plague Rats, more than perhaps any other card in the set, although it's neck and neck in some cases, illustrates the fact that Alpha was not designed for four card, to be played with four card caps, right? Four per card caps, max maximums. <laughs> right, <laughs> Plague right. Rats is basically unfunctional, non-functional. <laughs> if you can only play four of them in a deck, it's designed, it, the, the design intent is clearly that you are be able, you know, be able to spew out Plague Rats at a fairly decent clip. You know, whether it's, you know, 50% of your deck or 25% of your deck is, is Plague Rats is debatable. The point is that you're supposed to have more than four, whether it's a 40-card deck or a 60-card deck or whatever. Um, but I think, again, what makes... What is interesting in this set review and what's interesting about Alpha League is that it opens up possibilities that are otherwise foreclosed in Constructed Magic, which is building a deck that has, like, you know, basically X number of one card, let's call it card A, and then Y number of card B, and then basic lands, and you can basically run that. So in this case, it could be Dark Rituals, Plague Rats, and then maybe a few smattering of utility cards, like maybe some Paralyzes and Pestilences or whatever, Terrors. And you can do that for any number of concepts, right? Like Banalish Heroes with Blessings and Crusades, and you know, Swords and Disenchants. <laughs> right, right. Or Armageddons. Um, and I think it actually interests, it opens up a lot of design space. It seems superficially simplistic, Right. What's interesting about playing a Plague Rat deck against a Banalish Hero deck? But here's the spin on it, Kevin. So, superficially, if I were to build a deck, let's just say 40-card decks, 
And let's say each deck has 20, 20 of card A, Banalish Hero versus Plague Rats, and then 15 lands, and then 5, let's say... Well, let's make it Rituals in the case of Plague Rats, and let's make it... What's something fairly innocuous that can help help a little bit? Let's say... Help me out here, Kevin. Let's just add more P- Banalish Heroes to keep it simple. Okay? What deck wins? <laughs> what deck wins? Okay. Right? If you put those up against each other, well, the analysis would be Banalish Heroes come out faster and banned, but the Plague Rats, if the Plague Rat deck can stabilize, it'll probably be able to grow more power per turn because every Plague Rat you play with Plague Rats in play is like casting a spell with Monastery Mentor in play and Monk Tokens. They all grow larger. <laughs> right. right. So there's an interesting kind of beautiful, elegant, mathematical dynamic at play. And what I think is so interesting about it is that you can figure out who can win, but it only takes a few cards change between matches to totally, sh- sh- you know, flip the dynamic. So let's say we can figure out who wins Banalish Hero versus Plague Rat. I think one of the things that's clear is that the, the Banalish Hero, the banding is very powerful, but the problem is that the band on defense is better than the Plague Rat on offense, and but the band on offense is, you know, the Plague Rats can block with one Plague Rat the entire band, and then the Plague Rats can then yeah. s- on the swing back, you know, you, you, you draw a Plague Rat, you play it, <laughs> your whole team is pumped, you only need four Plague Rats in play to make that lethal in one swing. But here's the thing, right? The trick is you just change a few cards, add a couple of plowshares, add a couple, add a blessing, add a, heck, add an unholy, a holy strength, right? A holy strength that can give your whole band a lot more defense. And it just totally yeah. mucks up the math and makes everything totally nonlinear in ways that I think that's really what makes magic interesting. <laughs> Magic isn't interest. Magic isn't interesting oh, yeah. about like matchup A versus matchup B in a static way. It's how do you change at the margins these few small number of cards? And I think this cut in Alpha is a both the set and also for league design creates conceptual space to think about these things to think about Magic in a way that's simplified but also but illustrates the underlying dynamic, right? Because you lose the complexity of all the tens of thousands of cards, but you gain. You know, simplicity of illustration, but the the complexity is baked in, is what I think it demonstrates. It's kind of like those <laughs> chess puzzles where you've only yeah. got a couple of pieces, right? You've got two or three pieces, right? And it's not the point is not um, necessarily how to win because that that's part of the purpose of those puzzles, but it demonstrates the extreme complexity even with the most basic of pieces, right? And the sort of thing where if you add in, if you got a two piece puzzle and you add in a third piece, the options, you know, expand geometrically, uh, quick, you know, quickly beyond our capability to calculate them. And I think that's akin to what you're talking about here is that you can get, you can distill some of the beauty of the system that is magic down into just the tiniest amount of game pieces and still get really satisfying results. And I would argue that. Even and so one part of the exercise that you and I have talked about in the past is just limiting yourself to comments, just as an exercise, right? And you still get interesting results. You and I haven't, re- you know, really monkeyed with uh, other, other weird things like, uh, I don't know, rares. You know, like if what if you put a couple of Wrath of Gods in the hero exactly. deck? Like, what does that do? It's not necessarily right. a great idea, but what happens? It's a total right? X factor. Or maybe better, what if you put, right? What if you put a, a Swords to Plowshares or two in there? Right? It just everything hinges i think one of the more interesting things that is interesting just because people don't think about it very much because alpha is so filled with headliners is what if you put a couple of death wards in the Demel- yes. demolish hero deck yeah. right 
exactly. then the That's intervening bl- attacks and blocks on the on the margins become much more risky right. for the, the rat it's deck. It's a great right? example because just it, I mean yeah. it's such a simple effect. It's not even it's not even about an overwhelming you know it's not like a source of plowshares could be totally crippling because it ripples ripples across right. you know the the plague rat deck, but a death ward is just so right. marginal and yet could be so such a big yeah. deal. And I think, and I think yeah, that that's, that's a, a great example, but it also just illustrates again, the beautiful complexity, the emergent complexity in magic from such a simple situation. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty I cool. I love it. I love it. And, um, uh, you know this, but I built a dual deck of Banal Shiro and Plague Rats just to kind of, is a, is a kind of intellectual exercise to see how this, to see how to, uh, what I can learn from just thinking through these kinds of scenarios. Yeah. Interestingly, um, Plague Rats was, in my eyes, one of the first of a long line of, of things that became somewhat common in Magic, which was, uh, give me commons, not the right word, but a recurring theme, which is cards that just by their design give you linear deck construction ideas or instructions, right? It, it didn't take much for even me as opening my first couple of booster packs. Granted, I had played a couple of games, but the point is opening a booster pack and seeing Plague Rats and saying, Oh well, obviously, if I pack my deck full of these, it's going to be cool, <laughs> you know. Yeah, that's yeah. It, my first deck construction advice, really, from the cards, right? And that has become a bit of a, a recurring sub theme, right? In the game now, we have things like I don't know what's the thing on top of my head. Well, Relentless Rats was a big one, a card that, that I, I don't I know think if it was. The it first was. One. I'm I sorry, I can't remember was. if it's the very first one that that yeah specifically called out on the card that you could so to to speak violate the tournament deck construction rules with this one card and have more than four copies in your deck and that's been reprinted or sorry that's been repeated a few times with cards like um shadowborn apostle and a few others at the elocutors the ones that mill from blue i forget what they're called but the, the 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 core element here is that was that was conceived of really and then and then implemented in a couple different ways over time. Not just here's my enormous creature because my deck is filled with only these, but it's getting a little bit further down the road of here's my enormous effect because my deck is filled with only these, that kind of thing. Plague Rats is the progenitor to all of those. It's also worth noting that Plague Rats is a bit of a progenitor to the original implementation of Slivers because Plague Rats counts all Plague Rats in play, yours and your opponent's which was one of the original design intents of slivers too conceptually was that all the slivers had all the, cap- the characteristics of all the slivers plague rats did that first but it was only with power and toughness there's a lot going on in this simple card and it's interesting <laughs> there really is a lot of a lot of yeah design was based on just this basic concept which is why i find it surprising that the card did not survive reprint for very long it's actually really sad yeah. it was well, an alpha beta unlimited and then it was in summer and fourth, but then well, the last printing was of fifth what edition. We just discussed, right? I mean, as magic design moved towards play for constructed space and frankly limited, I mean, you—it's just an—it's un, a non-viable design concept. I see your point. Yes, that's a very good point. The only place it's viable is for people who are casual kitchen top players who want to build a playground deck, and there certainly were those. I knew, I knew a guy. <laughs> You know, who was the known as the Plagrat guy? He just collected Plagrats and had his Plagrat deck. <laughs> but it yeah. was also the line- hyperlinear Plagrat deck is not exactly fun for multiplayer decks, multiplayer games. You know, it's it's designed for duels. So it's basically, when you get to 5th edition, you're printing Plagrats for casual kitchen top players. 
but also you're not doing it for it's a narrow niche of casual players right who who aren't playing multiplayer and they can tolerate their opponent having <laughs> unlimited plague rats <laughs> you know what i mean yeah yeah i do so i don't know that how the timing works exactly but fifth edition i don't know the year is exactly fifth edition is copyrighted 97 so it probably came out in 97 and relentless rats were printed first in fifth dawn and that's 2004. So you've got a little bit of a gap there. But my instincts are that Relentless Rats was conceived and designed at pretty proximate to the removal of Plague Rats from from the, the, the subsequent printings of core sets, right? Maybe it was around the time that 6th edition was being developed when R&D decided it's time for Plague Rats to go. It doesn't fit with magic anymore. Oh, but hey, maybe we could design a new card that evokes the plague rat right and so that timeline kind of fits i I, i'm only speculating here but i would i would bet that about the time that plague rats was removed from magic was also about the time that relentless rats was designed and then a few years later we ended up getting relentless rats just a few other notes plague rats has only ever been, been printed with its alpha art by anson maddox which is in my opinion a pretty gruesome art like it properly conveys the notion that this rat is diseased <laughs> yeah, and you don't pretty... want to be anywhere near it. <laughs> well, we're living in a plague year, so it's an appropriate subject for discussion. You know, it, it almost looks like it's a zombie rat. Not, it's not really carrying plague, it's just a zombie. <laughs> that's that's a fair point, and I, I, I couldn't really disagree with you at all there. Do you happen to know what plague rats looked like in Alpha? Because, or sorry, in Gamma? <laughs> They're... It, whatever it was, it wasn't called Plague Rats. So let me see. Did it go by another name? Uh, no, there's apparently no rats in black in Gamma. Is it the sort of card that was added? Let me see. Yeah, sure enough. Wow. It was added. Brilliant. A top-down design that was added Brilliant after inclusion. Gamma. Yeah. I mean, there's so much about magic we wouldn't you know, know uh, if this card didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Your observations about what caused this card to be removed from magic are, I think... Further testament to just how brilliant it was. Uh, I'm really glad that this was added after Gamma because I do think it adds a lot to the game and the design space of it. Well, let me ask you, Kevin. Do you know anyone who do you know anyone who used to play Plague Rat decks casually back in the day? The short answer is yes. Uh, I never really put together one that had a significant quantity of it, but I do remember that after acquiring a certain density of booster packs i just had enough plague rats that i put kind of the just the plague rat deck together it wasn't like um it wasn't like that i had 22 it wasn't like an 1822 build like you've got for alpha league it was probably more like i've got 10 of these and then other things you know unholy strengths or dark rituals or something you know supplemented with other stuff so it wasn't a pure exercise but i definitely played that deck and definitely some of my friends did at one point or another, too. It was never very interesting, though. It was more just kind of a lark. And we would play, and it was like, oh, that was pretty funny. Now let's play a different game. The, the, the thing is, is that one of the things that's always attracted me to Magic, while the deck construction aspect and the, uh, the emergent gameplay of the Playground deck is interesting, you're not filled with very many interesting choices when you're <laughs> well, playing. Well, uh, it depends on how and many so... <laughs> uh, you know, supplemental utility spells you, are, you're, you have. I mean, there is a fundamental question of when to strike. That's Granted. basically it, right? <laughs> when to attack and when not to. That's true. I'm not saying there's no gameplay. I just compared to other strategies, there's comparatively Fair. less. <laughs> oh, it's it's worth noting that um, Plague Rats has a Coleridge quote, uh, quote from Recantation, which says, Should you a rat to madness tease, 
why even a rat may plague you, which is pretty nice. Yep. Love those quotes. Nice little All right, anything else literary on touch with Sam Coleridge. No, thank you for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, diving deep with me on Plague Rats. Well, the next three cards are ones that we would normally dive deep on conceptually, <laughs> but they're probably the weakest in the, the pentad of this set, and that is Basic Planes. What can you say about Jesper Mirfor's triptych of <laughs> Basic Planes from Alpha, Beta that hasn't already been said? Um, we talked a lot, Steve, about A, B, yes. and C and how the seas were introduced for beta. This particular land, above all others, has the most commonality yes. between A, B, and C, and the most just unbelievable commonality yeah, between A and They're nearly identical. Let, let's, <laughs> let's just describe them briefly. So, planes A is, we'll just call, a regular planes. Planes B has a small <laughs> set of, a kind of cops of trees in the middle of the, uh, what do you call it? The middle ground of the horizon? Yeah. Yeah, the middle ground. Between the foreground yeah, the and the mountains. And then... But otherwise has exactly the same composition. Exactly yeah. the same composition. And then plane C is is the most different, but it has very little, just a few wisps of grass in the foreground. No clear mountain range in the background, just a kind of cloudy background. And then just some very light, land like light green land but the the structure yeah. of the composition is same for all three you know the horizon reaches about the same point in the frame you know there's about yeah. the same amount of sky same amount of ground you've got you know flat land with what appears to be mountain ranges in the far distant background and a little bit of foliage up front mm-hmm. and c a little bit more in a and b so a is no trees b is trees and c is like the wasteland plains yeah one notable feature of C is it has some pink in the horizon because it appears to be evoking a uh, close to sunset time frame, even though there's no sun present, but the sky is darker in C. And so the pinkness over the horizon tells me that it's trying to evoke sunset, whereas the A and B are very clearly just midday, no no discernible shadows. So, Kevin, which one of these is your favorite? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's C by a long shot, but that's mostly for the sake of variety. I even as a kid, here's one big problem with these is that in revised where I encountered them mostly originally, they're just so washed out and boring. The white borders don't do this art any uh, any favors, and all three of them just looks very weak. The problem with the the black borders help these cards a lot because in the A and B cases especially where there's a little bit of um, terrain in the foreground the black border helps to kind of pull that terrain off to the sides and make it feel a little bit more panoramic make it feel like you're in it yeah. so to speak when you white border this card then the composition of those triangles of terrain just dominates the colors and you get these triangles of green that look well they just they just draw your eye down in a way that's not interesting. That's not the plane, right? That's actually the thing. That's like you're coming out of the forest and walking out onto the plane. And so it's drawing your attention to the wrong bits. And the clouds, which are pretty well rendered, blur into the white borders and make the sky just feel enormous. And and so you just kind of lose all emphasis on the actual terrain itself, which is why I really dislike revised planes. And now, terrain uh, number C, number C, plane C 
isn't helped by blackboard as much either but at least draws your eye toward the land in in every case in my opinion even though that land is incredibly boring <laughs> so sees my favorite and it's 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 just a sad contest is what is i would this say because is this because um is part of it because you like the richness of the beta frame for this yes that is part of it also and the little bit the little splash of pink yeah. doesn't hurt either just for variety. I think I think I lean towards B. Um, I actually I don't I actually see my least favorite simply because it feels too dead and desolate. It you it you called it that. boring, but to there. me it feels lifeless. <laughs> like it, yeah, I do enjoy the trees aspect of. I mean, B. I don't even get a sense of a lot of like it helps a bit small woodland you know critters living in this like you know groundhogs or something. It's just nothing. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> There, it's desolate. There's no. There's it could no be Mars. That. I mean, <laughs> except for the swift, you know, the small bits. Yeah, the yeah, the clouds are the only thing that separates this from Mars. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I go B because I like the little trees on the plains. Yeah, but you know, th- I do like the sense of scale that these pieces evoke. That part's nice. You get a pretty distant horizon here with these, and that's pretty well rendered in A and B thanks to the foreground. So I like that aspect. Plains has the unique place in my draft land set of being the only ones that I don't use alpha beta from. Ah. When I play planes in limited, I I play with the tulip planes from APAC. I do have a handful of these and I'm looking forward to to Jesper being at an eternal weekend or similar event at some point in the future so I can get a whole bunch of them signed because his signature is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. He has a great signature that I think was revealing though, just on how bad these, (laughs) how bad the, uh, um, the a disappointing and lackluster yeah. the art on the on the ABU planes are that you would dare not play play them you know, prefer them over <laughs> something else I think that just says everything yeah but hey my aesthetics are not everyone's aesthetics so if you really dig the the alpha beta planes then more power to you there is a certain cachet that comes with alpha beta lands no matter how they look. All right, Steve, I think we can move on and talk oh, about Plateau. I know From you're going to have a lot another. to say about this one. <laughs> well, I don't know about too much, but let's... Let, so Plateau is obviously one of the dual lands, uh, one of the 10 in the cycle. It was in alpha. And sadly, the Plateau has the the infamy of being the one out of the 10 dual lands that had its art changed <laughs> in revise. ABU and then the collector's editions and international editions had the same original alpha art, but revised has a different art, which is unfortunately misattributed to Drew Tucker. The the revised art was done uh, by Cornelius Broody. And, well, I know which one you prefer. The, then. I'm not sure how far <laughs> that. Uh, well, yeah, that's true for a couple of reasons, but I don't remember how far. Yeah, so unfortunately, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm switching subjects here, but the. The Cornelius Broody art is misattributed to Drew Tucker in both Revised and in any of the black-bordered versions of Revised, as well as in Summer. It's still attributed to Corne- uh, to, to Drew Tucker in Summer. The Cornelius Broody art was only ever actually properly attributed to Cornelius Broody in the digital printings of Plateaus on Magic Online. But, yes, you're referring to the fact that Drew Tucker is my favorite magic artist and continues to be which means that I strongly prefer ABU plateaus. And the, those that I play with now, I have the luxury of playing with um, Drew Tucker's art when I play with them. I happen to have altered dual lands, which is uh, pretty, From Drew? 
not pretty from, relevant here, but uh, uh, no, from 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 other artists. But when I got Dual Lands altered, it was important to me to get unlimited versions altered specifically so that I could get my set to, for my set to have the Drew Tucker plateau as the basis for the altar. So I, I asked my altarist Earl De Leon to be very loyal to the original art for Drew Tucker and basically just make it snowy. And he did a bang up job doing that. So the, the things I like about Drew Tucker's art here are that it not only conveys a plateau, but the plateau part is not actually the necessarily the dominant focus of the art. The, you know, strictly speaking, the majority of the art is focused on the area beneath the plateau. And one of the things I love about it is there's a lot of shadow play the sun is coming over the plateau, casting a shadow over the rocks below, and then there's some of the rocks casting their own shadows. So it's actually more like an allusion to being in, in the shadow of the plateau, which I think is kind of nice. It is one of the more, I would call it, close to photoreal depictions that Drew Tucker is is uh, has put into the game. So many of his prints are far more conceptual and uh you know conveying the the implication of action or the implication of a subject i find this plateau art to be one of the more literal but that doesn't that's not a criticism by any stretch i think it's very nice so i have a strong affinity for this particular dual land because it's the only one that drew tucker got to do in fact it is the only land that drew tucker got to do and at the risk of at the risk of being uh making this too much about myself I, in the very early days of my experience with magic, fell in love with Drew Tucker's art. Somewhere around Homelands, where he was doing a lot of cards, I built a deck that had only Drew Tucker art in it, and I was very sad that he never did a basic land. <laughs> that makes it difficult to play and, a Drew Tucker deck. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's Well, that's right. So I had to, sac- I had to compromise on the lands, <laughs> 20 but plateaus. I made sure that the deck had... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I made sure that the deck had red and white in it, so that I could play yeah. a set of plateaus in it. Um, but unfortunately, I had to kind of scrimp and and scrape around for Drew Tucker arts on the plateaus. So I had a mixture of like one beta, one unlimited, and I think two collector's editions in that deck. Because back when I built this, I did not have a comprehensive collection. And I was, I was, <laughs> I was really um, uh, doing what I could with what I had. Now, I'm not complaining about having a beta plateau by any stretch. That's an awesome card. And it's I'm glad that I have it. But... Simple fact is, is that deck was a quirky deck, obviously not very high quality, and obviously I only played it for fun because that's all I could really do with a selection of cards that Drew Tucker had done, which are not all strategic powerhouses. <laughs> but um, anyway, that's just a little something about my affinity for the card plateau. I continue to love it to this day. I think it's actually my favorite of the alpha duels, or well, alpha beta duels, even though I have played with the blue duels many 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 more times in the vintage context two quick points kevin number one it's it's our podcast so you can talk about yourself and your journey as much as you'd like and i encourage that (laughs) number two appreciate um why do you think it is that drew tucker didn't do more landscapes lands i mean this plateau piece is pretty phenomenal the angle shot is incredible you know the the kind of bent uh point of view you know angular you know, shot. I mean, if you com- if you juxtapose this with the revised one, it's no question. In, in my opinion, it's no contest that this is just a lot better. And thirdly, uh, the fact that you latched onto Drew Tucker early, I think, speaks volumes about your sense, your aesthetics. 
that I think Drew Tucker is something that I think yeah. a lot, you know, his style is, let's say, an acquired taste and that it's something that, you know, doesn't immediately evoke kind of, you know, traditional fantasy flavor. But I think the more you get into mm-hmm. it, get into it and see his art, the more you go to appreciate it. Yeah, well, uh, I agree on all fronts. And you did ask a question in there in your observations. And I would say, I would be speculating, I would be purely speculating to talk about why I think um, Drew may not have been called upon to do more lands. But I have to say that if you look at his art from the early days, it's um, unequivocal in my eyes that he did some pieces that suggest he could have been good for other lands. So not necessarily an alpha, because in alpha it was mostly figure pieces for him. But if you look forward into, say, the dark, where there's people of the woods, he, that's a very clear depiction of a forest setting. And if you look further into Ice Age, you get Musician, which is also a beautiful forest setting with birch trees, which is very evocative and I think very representative. And also in Ice Age, you get Earth Lore, so he which can is another, do it. another he strong can do forest it. setting. I strongly believe so. I have a feeling it was more of a, maybe a combination of coincidence and preference by the art directors at this era that his style was just more for figures or other conceptual things. I mean, they gave him some difficult things. They gave him <laughs> holy light, which I have well, to be honest, you know, you could do some very strong literal things with rays of sunlight in that one, but well, let he me, did Let me not. just say one quick thing that I think <laughs> this is built on, built on the point I made earlier, which is that you don't. I don't think you can fully appreciate Drew Tucker until you see his work in the dark. And once you get to the dark, <laughs> then you can really see just the full emotional power of his style. Comes, you know, the the kind of yeah. both subtle and overt horror. You know, he's able to demonstrate right. And it be- I, I, I think there's a reason they gave him ashes to ashes and yeah. dust to dust, right? Yeah, <laughs> the set is kind of in that. a sense built around his his. <laughs> he's the core of the set, but. But it is such an odd and beautiful piece, and it's also, I think, makes it a very nice collector's piece here. That is, I'm speaking about Plateau, because the fact that it's only an yeah. ABU, you know, but is dwarfed in terms of the number of copies that exist by the revised printing. This is a this is a beautiful piece. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. In case any of our audience didn't know it before, don't go to Drew Tucker to get your plateaus signed if they're <laughs> revised. Okay, or for or foreign black border because that is not his piece of art. And it's a real shame, Steve. So, again, about more about myself. Drew Tucker is the only magic artist I have ever written to or sent cards to. Because when I was in college, I started to get exposure to games, festivals, and things like that. You know, Origins and that kind of thing. And even local events, some larger tournaments, sometimes had magic artists. I remember L.A. Williams came to a t- tournament in... Uh, northern ohio that i went to just a, kind of like a small ptq kind of thing and la williams was there i got some cards signed so and artists being at tournaments was kind of just introduced to me by happenstance in my early days getting slightly into competitive play and so then it became kind of a standard well origins the first couple times i went to origins it really blew my mind you know there were dozens of artists there and but unfortunately drew tucker i think i'm not sure but i think he was a west coast artist at the time I think he lives in the north, the northwest now, but he never made it out to Origins or Gen Con or any of those East Coast things or, or even the Midwest things. So I wrote to him. Wait, what year was this? And sent him some way, cards and said, "Hey, and, oh, this would have been." Um, 
Oh, wow. This would have been 95. <laughs> You're not joking. You were a huge yeah. fan from the beginning. Wow. Well, it's true. It's true. So I sent him a, a small stack of cards, nothing greedy. You know, there's probably 20 <laughs> cards in there. And I sent him a little letter and asked him a couple of questions. And he he, he wrote me a letter back wow. uh, that's handwritten. You still have this? And it's, oh my it's God. this letter right here. It's <laughs> from our, for our audience. I just reached behind <laughs> me framed. and grabbed it because it's framed and it's awesome. on my desk. And so it, it's I, I I won't read it to you. That would be the, the, the height of decadence. But suffice it to say, he wrote back to me and it was very nice. Um, I mentioned all of that just because to tie that forward to today, he was scheduled to be at Eternal Weekend last year in 2019. And there was some kind of snafu with his flights. And he couldn't make the trip. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, and you were so disappointed. He was pushed. He was pushed forward. I know. I had. A, I, had a, I was very disappointed. Um. Uh. He was then pushed forward into the plan for 2020, and we all know what happened about 2020, right? So I was all set to finally meet this man face to face, and was God. super excited about it. And Stymied. then he he just couldn't make the trip for whatever reason, and then here we are in COVID. And so I'm desperately hoping that whenever Eternal Weekend becomes a thing in person again, that he'll be back on the list. And so it, since I when I learned that he wasn't going to be able to make it, which was pretty close to the event, right? I mean, it was it might have been day of. In fact, I can't remember when the timing was. But anyway, as soon as I knew that he was going to be at the event, I commissioned a piece from him. I commissioned a single card sized art from him <laughs> this ties back to my original deck with his you know lands in it i commissioned him to paint me mm. a snow-covered island <laughs> <laughs> because i wanted to be able to play with a drew tucker card in vintage <laughs> in my land base so so he painted it but unfortunately then he couldn't he, i was going to pick it up in person at ew I never knew this. in 2019 wow. and he couldn't make it yeah and so, since he didn't make it, he was very gracious, and he shipped it to me, obviously. Uh, but it's just kind Show of a colossal me. shame. I really hope that I get to I get to see him in person. Oh, it's um, it's in a deck over here, and it would take me a minute to to figure out which one it's in. I, I play it in one of my EDH decks. So anyway, long story short, I I knew I was going to end up talking about Drew Tucker a fair bit when we're reviewing Alpha, but I think Plateau is probably the the ideal place to have that discussion. So Drew Tucker did three cards in Alpha. And we've reviewed two of them now, Clockwork Beast, Plateau, and we're coming up on Power Leak. And those are the only three cards he did in Alpha. When I bought my first Power in 1995, I found a player who I had just met at college who had beta cards but was no longer interested in playing that much and just wanted to cash. So I bought eight-ninths of the Power 9 because he didn't have a jet for whatever reason. I bought the rest of the Power 9 from him and I bought two other cards. And those two other cards were a beta clockwork beast and a beta plateau. <laughs> God, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, the first large purchase I made of magic. And it was eight of the power nine plus a clockwork beast and a plateau because they were Drew Tucker cards. <laughs> and I still have both of those. I still have my beta clockwork beast and that beta plateau. Ah, uh, fun times, fun times. Yeah. Drew Tucker was formative to my early days of magic. Um, Unfortunately, Plateau is is not the best no. dual land when it comes no. to, you know, tournament magic and the ways that I play it, which is, you know, a bit of a shame. Someday. But at the same time, I take every opportunity I can to, to play him. And, Someday and Plateau's and time will come, Kevin, and you will be ready. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. My body is ready. Oh, that was fun. Thanks for indulging me. Anything else on Plateau? God, I wish I owned one of these. <laughs> Someday you will. 
All right, let's move on and talk about, oh, hey, look, it's that other Drew Tucker card, Power Leak. This is an entirely different animal. <laughs> so Power Leak for 1U is an enchant enchantment. Let me let that sink in for a second. Enchant enchantment. It says target enchantment costs two extra mana each turn during upkeep. If target enchantment's controller cannot or will not pay this extra mana, Power Leak does one damage to him or her for each unpaid mana. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a hilarious little kind of jab at the end. You could could pay one if you wanted to, and you'd only take one damage. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We don't need to belabor the ways in which this this language is funny, right? It has the the issue of uh, referring to upkeep ambiguously right it, it's been eroded in oracle to refer to just the enchanted enchantments controllers upkeep but the rest of the function of the card has basically been retained in in the oracle it says power leak deals two damage to that player prevent x of that damage where x is the amount of mana that player paid this way which is kind of a strange um well sorry let me read the whole thing at the beginning of the upkeep of enchanted enchantments controller that player may pay any amount of mana okay that's a weird construction I don't know why it says any amount of mana, but then it says it does two damage and prevent X of that damage where X is the amount of mana that the, the player paid this way. It seems like a really overwrought way of structuring this ability, but I don't know. And I also don't know how it evolved over time. I've got to take a look. This card was printed far more <laughs> than it should have been, right? Should have been retired. It was printed much. up till fourth edition. Yeah. Immediately. <laughs> yeah. They um, were committed to that cycle. One bright spot is Kevin, it's only ever been really printed. They were committed to it. <laughs> They absolutely were. Um, it's um, it were printed into fourth edition with, and it's only ever been printed with the Drew Tucker art, which is cool. So the revised wording, in my opinion, is a little more elegant. The revised wording says during the upkeep of Target Enchantment's controller, Power Leak deals two damage to him or her. That player may pay one, which is a generic, for each damage he or she wishes to prevent from Power Leak. That seems far more elegant, don't you think? I don't know why they made it so laborious now that you can just pump any amount of mana into it. A strange roundabout way to avoid mana burn, I guess. Yeah, there's still in the revised ambiguity whether it's at the beginning of upkeep, which was corrected, or I shouldn't say corrected, but was added in fourth. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, Steve, this is one of those cards that Drew Tucker's art notwithstanding, I just had it's a common from revise. I just had stacks of them and never cast one. Like I might have tried it once early on. And thought, well, that was disappointing. It is comical though. The math on this is the math it is really just. Is. It's, <laughs> I mean, they could have just made it so much simpler, right? <laughs> just they pay two or take two damage. Yeah. Instead of this convoluted syntax. Yeah. Well, and it's worth noting that there are only four cards in Magic that have the phrase oh, really? enchant enchantments. Two of them are yeah. Two of them are from Alpha, and then the other, the next one is from Saga, which is called Power Taint, which is just um, Power Leak but with cycling. So that's back when they still thought you could toss cycling on basically any card and make it good, and that wasn't true. And then the the only real decent card of the lot is the card Steel Enchantment, which you can imagine just enchants an enchantment and you control it. But it hasn't been since Tempest that we had a card with the, the words Enchant Enchantment. Well, <laughs> I, I does it's not the most intuitive thing, right? Enchanting an enchantment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it definitely makes causes you to, yeah. to have a double take. And remind everyone what the other one from Alpha is, which we'll get to. Oh, yeah. The other one from Alpha is feedback, which is really strange in how much overlap there is between feedback and power leak, right? Because feedback just simply yeah. says... 
during the upkeep of Enchanted Enchantments controller, it does one so damage. So much more to direct. Them. So why are there two cards that are so similar? That's a so very similar. good question. Are both of these cards in Gamma? Hey, that's a good question, and I don't know the answer. Let me see. So, you know, it's strange, Steve. <sighs> Feedback is in Gamma, but Power Leak is not. So feedback exists in gamma and it's actually lower powered which is really strange it costs four mana in <laughs> in gamma and it says owner of enchantment with feedback loses one life each of their upkeep so it was really a parallel design with things like uh, cursed land for example which it was it is still but they they powered it up by decreasing the mana by one but power leak was added so it's it's really strange i don't know why they they felt the need to add another feedback variant in Power Leak after Gamma, but here we are. Yeah, it's very strange. I I think this set would have been perfectly fine without, well, either of those <laughs> cards, but at least not the second one. I mean, the in some ways, Power Leak is more interesting. Sure, feedback is more consistent with the cycle, but at least Power Link gives people layers an option. We, as we yeah. know from you know 27 years of Magic history, that the Punisher mechanics are terrible because their opponent will always take the advantage, the better option for them. Right, right. <laughs> You know, and that that's here, but... I kind of agree with you about the interesting part. Feedback is more powerful and that it can do more damage. It also plays into other mechanics, right? Like, you can... Yeah. You can put out Winter Orb. Like you Winter can put Orb. Psychic yep. Venom on their lands. Like, you can make it less attractive for them to be tapping mana. Yes, yes. Yeah. All right. Speaking of tapping mana, <laughs> the next... There's yes. this... Um, the word power in uh, alpha is synonymous with mana right mana so yeah. the, the, these three cards in this cycle here so to speak all have to do with that next is power sync this is uh what an interesting card right xu for interrupt it says target spell is countered unless it's caster spends x more mana semicolon caster of target spell can't choose to let it be countered let me say that again caster of target spell can't choose to let it be countered period if caster of target spell doesn't have enough mana comma all available mana from lands and mana pool must be paid but target spell will still be countered there's a lot i want to talk about in this in this card, <laughs> this card Kevin, slices before, and dices it's all yeah, over the road <laughs> uh, but before the bef- there's two points i want to make out, out the gate but before we do that is there anything you want to say about the text first just that there's so much um, kind of colloquial language going on here that isn't codified by the rules that it's it's just comical. Like, can't choose to let it be countered is a hilarious phrase. Yeah. Um, and also, it's it's really just over... What's the word? Really ambitious design to think that um, all available mana from lands and mana pool must be paid. Like... There, that is so hard to codify in practice what that really means <laughs> and what it does in the corner cases. So this card was a real ambitious design, and yet it's so hard to implement. Yeah. So just for starters, this is one of the most powerful counterspells in ABU. Mm-hmm. I mean, counterspell is just unconditional blue-blue, sets the standard. But in many ways, this is actually more powerful than counterspell. And let me go through a few ways, and then I want to talk about the interrupt nature of it and how this has been radically depowered after Mm. 6th edition. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first thing just to point out is that in a context in which you don't have fetch lands, blue-blue can be a dicey proposition, especially if you're playing like a 3 or 4 or 5 color control deck, Um, depending on how much blue you emphasize, or even a 2 color one. Really until Ice Age, you know, 2 color decks 
couldn't necessarily get, you know, the double color, whatever their primary color is, reliably. Because you only had dual lands and basics, to some extent City of Brass. It wasn't until Ice Age that you got another set of dual lands, the pain lands, to supplement that. So Power Sync was a very powerful option and appeared in a lot of tournament decks. Um, Power Sync also is is subtly powerful because it it's highly synergistic with a lot of good, powerful tactics like mm-hmm. Winter Orb, Icy Winter Orb, uh, Stasis. Uh, you mentioned Psychic Venom before. We're going to get to that soon. Um, so Power Sync can do a lot of things that aren't just about countering, but about mucking with your opponent's mana in a way that's very frustrating and difficult to deal with. So being 1x, you know, both makes it easier to play than in a lot of cases than just counterspell. Um, so it's kind of neck and neck in certain contexts for being almost as good as counterspell. Um, and I think is much better than spell, spell blast, which is the, the, the third. There aren't, are there any other counterspells in alpha? Beta Unlimited? I can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, well, just the... <clears throat> there's the color conditional ones, as you said. This, oh, of course. The, the Blood the Blast, Red Blast. Blue and red, right? And then Fork, I guess, might be in that family. Fork, fork you cannot ca- copy and interrupt, which we covered. Yeah. So, um, so the second thing to point out, though, is that PowerSync was designed as an interrupt. And if you're looking... there, are, It's always interesting to, to try and think about what cards are powered up and what cards are powered down through rules paradigm change. Rules changes, right? So the wishes were massively powered down after M10. Right. Power sync was, you know, and, and also things like power surge massively powered down after M10 when they eliminated mana burn, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. But power sync is a card that was probably among all the cards, one of the most, un, you know, massively powered down <laughs> after as a result of sixth edition. Just massively. Because yeah, it, I mean, it, it suffers all the power degradation or diminution that counterspells suffer and that you can respond to counterspells with instants. But the functionality of this, of being able to gum up your opponent's mana, is, is you know, and not respond in it, with instants. So just let me put a, you know, create a very simple example that illustrates this. You're playing a red deck, Kevin. I'm playing a blue deck. You cast, let's say you cast a red creature against me. Let's say a name a red creature from Alpha. Fire Elemental. There you go. Fire Elemental. Mm-hmm. And you have, let's say, ten mana. Yep. And I cast Power Sync for six, right? Yep. To counter this. And your hand has a fork and a lightning bolt and a dragon know, whelp. A dragon whelp, right. You you cannot even respond with lightning bolt. Like, you know, let's say you've got you've got it, you I have a creature that you want to burn out. Right. So that you can get in with your fire elemental. When I play power sync, you can't even respond with that lightning bolt. You have to not only tap down, but all the mana has to go to pay, towards paying this. And the fact that you can not only respond with instants, but also, you know, um, cast them, right? I mean, use the mana to cast them is just totally antithetical to what this is trying to do. So it's, it's also, I think, like one of the most important cases for preserving interrupts in old school magic it makes that's a reason power sync one reason not the only but one reason power sync sees almost no play yeah yeah the the place that this really comes up though kevin is instead of just playing instance activate abilities fast effects you've got a jam day tome in play can't activate in response can't do it <laughs> yeah it's an interrupt um you can imagine lots of scenarios like that yeah right pump nights activate a mistress factory can't do it so power sync is immensely powerful 
the thing that gets really tricky about power sync is it's really difficult to pl- you, you know in contemporary magic we like to have huge be- counter spell stacks right <laughs> <laughs> you know mana drain force of will misdirection uh fluster storm a uh, red elmo blast fluster storm mind break trap mm-hmm. power sync's the kind of card where you've got to figure out you got to go heavy in you can't there's, there's no like middle ground often it's you've got to go almost all in with power sync and power sinking, you know, power sinking a power sink is also a very dicey proposition. <laughs> and when you have multiple power sinks, I mean, that's that's part of the problem with power sink is that it has some marginal diminishing returns, right? Marginal diminishing returns because the second power sink in any given moment is of very limited utility. Yeah, good point. But the first one's real good. The first one can be really good, <laughs> especially if, again, if you have a deck designed around it, stasis, psychic venom, winter orb, um, things like that. Um, it also, it can function like a little bit of a mana short, right? You, mm-hmm. you want to just tap your opponent down so you can play a big spell, mind twist, brain In guide. some ways, better than a mana short, even because you got a card out of their hand, too. Right. I came up, I had a very interesting scenario, which I'll publish someday, Kevin, you've seen where you're dealing with power sync against power sync, trying to figure out exactly how to calibrate the X when you right. have like 12 mana. <laughs> and it, believe me, it's no easy thing to figure out. Well, and not just that, but it involved basically all possible blue counter spells were <laughs> in, in play, so to speak, because it was a blue mirror. Both players had access to counter spell and spell blast and power sync. And that's a fascinating scenario about resource management and what's important, right? To let resolve versus you can't not let resolve like power sync. I did not appreciate until I read the alpha wording just how, I guess, stark is the word I would use. That the phrase caster of target spell can't choose to let it be countered is <laughs> that's <laughs> I mean I I knew that I, I knew intuitively that the spell had that that effect baked into it but I didn't realize it was stated so explicitly in the alpha wording that's a really that's like almost a mind slaver level uh, control aspect yeah like this is almost like a yeah. mini word of command tacked onto yeah. a counter spell right that's a great point. You can't just say, yeah, my spell's countered fine. It goes away. A lot of modern counterspells, most modern counterspells have that. Just, okay, it's countered fine, whatever. You cannot do that with a power sink. Power nope. sink has an additional rider that you must pay. <laughs> and the worst part, too, is if is that if you can't pay, it's it's like the government. We'll just dock your, your resources <laughs> until we get what we need. And if you don't pay enough, you still owe us. I mean, the, the spell's still countered and you lost all your mana. It's just incredibly punishing. Um, so, Steve, remind our audience: is this card this card is limited or restricted in some way in your Alpha League? No, you can play unlimited amounts. Wow, it sounds like it'd be pretty good. I mean, like it or not, this is a counter spell for one U in a lot of situations, right? Yeah, it's true. Um, in a lot of situations, it is. It is that uh, basically when your opponent taps down. Being this yeah. situation, <laughs> yep, it's a two mana counter spell, um, but most of the time it's um, yeah, most of the time you're paying more than that. I'll just say that. <laughs> Fair enough. But that's definitely the case. That's definitely the case with spell blast. So yeah. you know, but but you you don't have the additional ability of just forcing them to completely tap out, right? Because that's the thing is you can't. It's not like you can bait something. Okay, I'm going to get them to power sync this, and then I'm going to resolve this other spell. It doesn't work like that. Right. Right. So let's talk a little bit about some corner cases just for fun. 
how does this card interact with Dark Ritual? So Dark Ritual is an interrupt, right? Mm-hmm. Which means that you can respond with Dark Ritual, and that's probably the the best thing you can do <laughs> when the opponent has a black up and you cast Power Sync. Dark Ritual is definitely a danger. Um, one thing that my opponent tried to do to me was twiddle a Basalt Monolith in response, which you cannot do. Because twiddle is not an interrupt. It's an instant. So you yeah. have to pay close attention to the identity of the spells that people are playing. <laughs> right. <laughs> but Dark Ritual the, is... De- yeah, we're talking about the alpha-specific context here, of course. Yes. Or yeah. any old-school context in which you're playing with interrupts. Right, right. But you can Red Elemental Blast a Power Sink. Unquestionably. Right? Yeah. Unless, I mean, unless you're playing, like, super strict, <laughs> you know, textual versions of alpha. <laughs> But which makes Red Elemental Blast basically, you know, non-functional, except for destroying a blue permanent. Right, and we haven't gotten to Red Elemental Blast for the, our, our our audience's benefit at this point. The, the thing that you're referring to there, Steve, is that Reb was specifically Reb was misprinted in Alpha as an instant. Yeah, which, which it matters a lot. Is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at that you could still respond to creatures, you know, blue creatures and blue enchantments and stuff like that, I suppose, on the stack. Still, it's still an okay card, but uh, yeah. not quite the same power level if it's only an instant. Fundamentally broken, I would argue. Yeah, I mean, can you affirm that it's it, how difficult it is to figure out how much to pay for the power sink? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, the example that you're referring to, which you shared with me, not necessarily in real time, but shortly after it happened, was really a head-scratcher. I mean... It it was made more complex by the fact that it was late game in a in a forty card deck matchup where decking is a very real option and brain yeah. geyser becomes a kill spell and so yeah. the the issue was far more complex than it might even have been at face value just because resolving or countering your opponent's spell on their turn was not the only goal right the other goal was to restrict their mana such that you could ensure resolution of your lethal brain geyser on your turn. And that made the whole thing far more complicated. It's really tricky. <laughs> I mean, uh, dueling power sinks, especially in conjunction with other cards and counter spells and other things that really matter in the game, very complicated and very satisfying, in my opinion. I want to talk a, cu- a little bit about lineage, Steve. So, power sink is in an interesting position from a history standpoint because it didn't live that long in the game. Okay, its last printing was sixth edition. That's a decent lifespan. It's not that great, you know. Fourth, fifth, that kind of thing. Lots of cards live that long. But here's the weird part. It was in each of the core sets that it could have been in. And when I say core set, ah, I'm stretching the definition. Yeah. Power Sync was in Ice Age, Mirage, Tempest, and Urza's Saga, which is a strong, wow, that's I know, incredible. Which is a strong yeah. assertion that R&D believed that Power Sync was a very foundational part of Blue's arsenal in the early days. And that makes it even more strange that the only printing after those... So 5th edition was sandwiched in between Mirage and Tempest. But then after Saga, it was just in 6th edition and it disappeared. It hasn't even been reprinted again. It's very, very strange. It's not like the card doesn't work anymore. You could print it today and it would function. It wouldn't be very good in, in modern context. Counter spells tend to give you a little bit more these days. But we know from recent set design, and by recent I mean 10 or 15 years, we know that Counterspell at 2 mana is too good. Right. They don't make 2 mana Counterspell unconditional anymore now in order to get a to get a pure counter spell you have to pay three mana and usually you get upside from their point from that point like um exiling the spell or cycling or some other thing but that what that suggests to me is that power sync is still i think 
within the realm of possibility of counter spells to be printed and for whatever reason they just haven't done it since sixth edition which is wild to I, me. i don't think i'd realized quite how ubiquitous this card was i mean <laughs> it's just subtle, isn't it? saga I don't, I don't think then, of it as an urza saga card but it's in there no. and then gone yeah i mean everywhere and then gone <laughs> why is i mean it has to be look it has to be related to the being powered down partly i, I mean that, because maybe the, the, it's also Urza saga a little comes bit out, confusing from a design standpoint so every single one of those printings, Kevin, has power sync as an interrupt. That yes. tells you a lot. <laughs> That's a good point. You're right. The card loses. So you're right. There's only ever been one printing of power sync at instant, and it was the last one in sixth. And I think you're right. I think that has a lot to do with it. Yes, because being an instant not only depowers it a lot, but also makes it more confusing as to why the effect is even on there to begin with. Now that you mentioned yeah. it, you wouldn't yeah. ever design an instant that way. Right. Yeah. You're right, that's probably all has a lot to do with it. What do you think about the alpha art? This is some Richard Thomas art with a a, a, a man holding his hands <laughs> up in front of him as though the thing he was trying to do with his hands just kind of fizzled, so to speak. <laughs> like looks like dissipating magic in his hands. I like the art. I think it's like appropriately quirky and cool. You know? It's um I, I don't know, I like it. Yeah. I could see how this could be polarizing, but I enjoy I enjoy this piece of art. Yeah, if, if, to me it's a little bit whimsical, but that's there's yes. nothing wrong with that. That's that's what makes it so cool. Yeah, but it's so different from the art on, say, Ice Age, which is oh, much, yeah. not only much more abstract, but <laughs> it suggests a completely different valence. Like a, you know, <laughs> I agree completely. Yeah, in fact, it's an interesting exercise to look at the last five printings of power sync because all five of them have different art and they all emphasize a pretty significantly different aspect of the card and they all set a really different tone yeah it's pretty noteworthy all right anything else on power sync steve no oh i should say in gamma power sync exists in gamma and it's basically the same effect it has a funny wording though it says spell being cast costs x more mana which must be paid if possible if not Whatever can be paid is, and the spell fizzles, discarded, no effect. Caster is only compelled to spend mana, f- land mana, excuse me, for this spell, but may spend more. <laughs> <laughs> land mana. <laughs> yeah. That's and, great. Yeah. Hard, like I said, difficult to implement. It was an ambitious design. I don't think they quite succeeded in terms of the rules language in alpha, but that the card's not alone in that regard. All right. Speaking of power, the third in our trifecta of power cards, so to speak, is Power Surge which is RR for an enchantment. It says, before untapping lands at the start of a turn, each player takes one damage for each land he or she controls but did not tap during the previous turn. Now, I've already read that text during this review when we were talking yeah. about um, um, mana barbs. Right. We kind of reviewed them in tandem. That's right. So we've already kind of covered this card. Steve, is there anything you'd like to add that maybe we didn't touch on at the time? Just to emphasize the point that I just made, which is this is a card. I mean, I remember when M10 happened and we were scouring trying to think, okay, Mana Burn's gone. Which cards have changed power the most? Yeah. Mana Drain got marginally better, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, this card was the card that people looked at and said, okay, this is complete. This is basically Bridge from Below. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> casted, right? Play, played from hand now. It's basically a blank card. <laughs> because yeah. no the only way you would take damage from this is if you completely well two i guess two possibilities one is that you just forgot 
<laughs> and you, you don't have to. a stop on your opponent's end step. <laughs> yeah, you forgot. <laughs> the second is if you deliberately wanted to keep mana open just to, you know, counterspell something that they might cast on their, you know. Well, even then, on- there's no window at which you would not have your mana and they'd be able to cast. Yeah, that's right. You just wait till their end step and pool all your mana. (laughs) The only way you'd really get hosed here is if the colors of mana that you pooled somehow restricted your options, which is obviously feasible. Gosh, the situation. (laughs) Yeah, but still. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So no, it's it's completely neutered by rules changes, hilariously so. (laughs) So given that, Steve, do you see anyone play this in older formats? Yeah, this card is actually pretty brutal in Alpha League. It's a rare, so it's not a lot of them going around, but there are enough control decks out there. Um, this card is can do, you know, especially when you hit a late game, this card can do a lot of damage. The other thing, I mean, there are, the, you have to find sinks to put into it, like Jade Statue, you know, Disrupting Scepter, Jam Day Tome, but it yeah. really does mean you're not maximizing your counterspell capacity. Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out is that there is an interesting uh, set of descendants around this card that are basically red enchantments that muck with your opponent having a lot of mana up to play counter spells. Yeah. And, you know, so even though this one's gonna, like, cards like Tetonic Instability from Invasion, things like that, there are others that are interesting. And I like the fact that even as far back as Alpha, they said, you know what, counter magic might be too good. Let's put in some countermeasures for that. Not that these things were, you know, good enough to dissuade people from, from playing counter magic because the height of the deck, no one would play Power Surge. But the deck also had four disenchant, so that helped address this problem. But the fact yeah. that they existed, I think, was an example of the foresight that Magic's designers and developers had in understanding that you needed to create counter tactics throughout Magic. And this is a good example of that. This is one of those cases where the gamma version of the card is just worded better. <laughs> it's the same card, ostensibly, in gamma, RR for an enchantment. Gamma says each player loses one life for each untapped land at the start of their turn. That's far superior to this alpha wording. Say that one more time. <laughs> each player loses one life for each untapped land at the start of their turn. Oh, that's simple. simple. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas this yeah. alpha wording bends over backwards to talk about for each land he or she controls but did not tap during the previous turn. That's just way overwrought, right? Yeah. Also, yeah. it opens up the notion of, well, so what if I tap them on my turn? Is that the previous turn, or is my opponent's turn the previous oh, turn? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. The alpha wording just opens it up to so much more ambiguity. I don't know why they thought that was better. That's pretty funny. There must have been some s- strange situation that came up and they were trying to fix, but who knows? Right, right. Well, I think we can move on from Power Surge. So next up is a classic, an absolute classic in... Oh, yeah. Prodigal Sorcerer. So, you know it. You love it. To you, for a summon wizard, it's a 1-1. Tap to do one damage to any target. Pretty good and efficient alpha wording there. Uh, What is there to say about Tim? I mean, (laughs) Tim has obviously a colloquial reference to the the nickname for this card, born out of Monty Python's Holy Grail, which I could talk a little bit about uh, that bit, and I'd kind of like to. But that's what's important here, is that this really cements blue as having this kind of utility creature in alpha in a way that stuck around for a long time and was in my opinion uh, a real perversion of the of the color pie and lasted for too long (laughs) but uh steve what's your what's your impression of prodigal sorcerer well 
it, the first thing I'd say is this card, even if you never played it or never used it, it leaves a strong impression. Yeah. The image of the the figure on this card is such a striking figure that you really can't but remember this card. <laughs> you know, it's really Definitely. remarkable. Remarkable, even if you've never actually had it cast against you. Um, the other thing I want to... So it's a very powerful piece of art from Douglas Schuler. Um, very, very memorable. Yeah. Uh, but also, it, this card has appeared in construct. I mean, this appeared, card has appeared in constructed decks as long as I can remember. People have played this card. This was in Zach Dolan's deck, wasn't it? It very well may have been. I don't want to verify that on the spot. I mean, I don't want to <laughs> I, affirm that on the spot because I'm not sure I'd have to verify. Uh, that's fair. But, I think it was. Yeah. But just so think about it just in terms of the alpha context, this immense scope of applications. Birds of Paradise, Land of War Elves, uh, Scrib Sprites, um, Benalish Hero, uh, you know, all the other 1-1s, X-1s, we talked about Phantasmal Forces. You know, there's so many targets. There's kind of an abundance of targets for this card. This card can do a lot of damage, tactically. Um, it's less of a threat strategically. You know, tapping this 20 times is not very likely. But it really does, it can do quite a bit. The other thing, Kevin, is that, that you point out is it is a utility creature. You just don't get a lot of utility creatures in Alpha. Absolutely. Right? I mean, like the next big utility creature is Gorilla Shaman out of Alliances. Yeah. You know, after Alpha Beta in Unlimited. You know, you, you have some utility creatures in between, but it's mostly things like we talked about Royal Assassin destroying. Yeah. You know, you don't. Orcish Artillery. Orcish Artillery. Um, this is just, again, one of those really good utility creatures um, because of its wide scope of application. Um, because it can hit any target. You know, like, like, the artillery has a painful drawback. This, this, this also has a lot of synergy. You know, speaking of the kind of XY decks that we were talking about earlier, like Plague Rats or Banalish Heroes, XY decks, mm-hmm. one of the XY decks I've, I'm building is Prodigal Sorcerer Power Sync. Just, if you can get multiple Prodigal Sorcerers in play and protect them with Power Sinks, how can you lose? Seriously. It's a serious question. <laughs> very, very difficult to win because any threat you can play, if you can, if you play a deck that has like, let's say, 11, let's say just 10 pe- prodigal sorcerers and 10 power sinks just to start and 15 lands and then five other, let's say, good blue cards. If you just land a few prodigal sorcerers, you can take out any threats your opponent can play or you can race any threat that they can play. Yeah. In a very meaningful way. And also, I mean, there's, we didn't talk about this with respect to plague rats. Maybe we should have. There is a real risk of dominoes. If you can just take out, like, you take out a plague rat, they shrink, then the next plague rats are easier to kill. You know, that's, that's a real danger. <laughs> Absolutely. With plague rats. Absolutely. I don't, I think the prodigal sorcerer concept, I mean, I think, n- not that my XY prodigal sorcerer power sync deck is a world beater, but I, I think it's an interesting, <laughs> again, an intellectual exercise to think about just how powerful in a cumulative way these effects can be. To put a little more meat behind what you said about utility creatures, there are only 16 creatures in Alpha that have a tap activated ability. Three of those are related to mana. Birds of Paradise, Lay Druid, Llanowar Elves. So you don't really count mana creatures as utility in this context. Good point. So you're down to 13. If you look at rarity, of those 13, let's see, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Six of those are rare. Guardian Beast, Demonic Hordes, Gaea's Liege... Northern Paladin, Pirate Ship, Royal Assassin. So if you take rares out of the equation, which are, you know, they're 
they're relevant, but they're harder to come by. When you talk about just the common, uncommon slot, there's only one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven creatures in the common, uncommon space that have an activated ability that doesn't make mana. Wow. That's it. Utility creatures, as you put it, are very precious in alpha. And That's out of 290, well, 302 <laughs> cards. <laughs> right. And you got to keep in mind that that seven includes all-stars like Dwarven Demolition Team and Stone Giant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not, they're not, not all, all very flexible. Nettling Imp, for example, which has its power, but not nearly as utilitarian as Prodigal Sorcerer is. That's why Prodigal Sorcerer and Orcish Artillery are such hits from a utility standpoint. Well, also wow. because of Orcish Artillery's uh, misprint, but... Yeah, but the the strong utility and flexibility of just spot damage is why Tim is just so powerful in context. Yeah, and if you put a, a instill energy on it, you get double the power. I mean, <laughs> oh double. yeah. Also, just the fact that it's so splashable, unlike Orcish artillery. Oh, good point. You know, blue two, it's 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 correctly costed. I think you know, for obviously yeah. you know we've bent down the curve in terms of utility creatures. We expect our utility creatures to all be, you know, Thalia in this day and age, or Goblin Welder, or better. But- right, right. Well, so this Prodigal Sorcerer was reprinted in the the basic core sets up through seventh edition, four, five, six, seven, and hasn't been in a format defining set since then. Reprinted in Time Spiral, Eternal Masters, mystery boosters but no no real relevant printing for formats since uh since well i guess time spiral does count so since time spiral and that was just kind of on a lark right it was in the time shifted sheet just as a throwback so while it was pretty formative to the early days of magic in practice it really only lived kind of one set longer than power sync did <laughs> up till seventh edition and it has never been in a non-core product uh, depending on how you count time spiral so it's only in core sets, ABU revised four, five, six, seven. So a pure core product kind of card and obviously underpowered by today's standards, but also, as I said before, uh, out of sync with the color pie, in my opinion, even though the notion of blue having low damage pingers was actually maintained for quite a while in the game, even so far as to reprint prodigal sorcerer in eternal masters, which I find actually kind of strange, but you know, yeah. but, but blue pingers were just a thing that was baked into the game from alpha. And it really said, bothers you, doesn't it? Well, I mean, it, I don't want to overstate. Okay. I do think, I do think it is not right for blues color identity. I think the only reason it's still well, part of blues color identity is the stickiness of prodigal sorcerer and to a much lesser extent, pirate ship. I want to make one just observation that, that direct, First of all, direct damage is a very large part of alpha. Oh, yeah. And direct damage is actually heavily in blue in alpha. It's yeah, heavy. It's, it's, it's not a marginal primary, thing. Primary in red, and the blue is the second best color at it. I mean, you've got psionic blast, psychic venom, feedback, power leak, uh, prodigal sorcerer, <laughs> pirate ship. There's a lot. There are a lot of ways to do direct damage with blue. Yeah. And, and, and I believe they recognize that psychic venom... And Psionic Blast and Prodigal Sorcerer would be heavily played. I mean, they're just, there's yeah. no ways around that. Those are cards that are going to see play. Yeah, absolutely. So we've, I think it's kind of a little bit of historical revisionism to say it sh- it's not, it shouldn't be part of the, you know, pie. Maybe that's true from some sort of, you know. That is my assessment of the current state. I do believe yeah. it was a mistake to put this kind of effect in blue. 
but part of that is informed by all the things that blue has absorbed over time and it's it's a it's a joke at this point to point out that blue does everything in magic and almost does everything in magic not quite but the the simple truth is that blue has a larger share of the color pie in practice and in in tactical in practical reality than most other colors but that's neither here nor there in terms of the review of this set you're absolutely right blue had a strong footing in direct damage and other damaging effects creature bond which we also reviewed <laughs> yeah I forgot that one as well yeah there was so there were how many enchantments that did damage psychic venom power leak and creature bond Fe- and feedback, feedback so four just in blue alone and well but I, my point is is that that is blue is the color that had the most of those right right because black has warp artifacts and cursed land. land and i guess you would count pestilence as an enchantment that does damage though yeah, it's dramatically different red had power sink and mana leak in terms of the enchantments oh. but that's the only those and, are the only ones and blue has volcanic eruption right right i'm just pointing out that in terms of those enchantments that do things blue is number one on the list red was number one in yeah. terms of spells that do targeted damage of course right black's the only other color that has one in drain life and then yeah. green green has hurricane so colors and, and red has red has mana barbs and power surge right right so each color kind of does its own thing in terms of direct damage but blue wins out in terms of enchantments Quantity. that do things yeah and it has the second most direct damage in terms of Tim and ship and blast. Yeah. yeah. So it's you're, you're totally right. It's it's definitely a strong footing in damaging sources in blue in the alpha context. I do want to point out um, <laughs> what the prodigal sorcerer looked like in gamma. <laughs> and in gamma, it's called minor wizard, but it's otherwise the same card. Three mana, can, uh, it says can tap for one damage. Yeah, it's the same exact card in gamma. Oh, uh, before we move on, Steve, I should say that I, I looked it up and Prodigal Sorcerer was not in Zach Dolan's list. Okay. I was misremembering because he had Lay Druid and Old Man of the Sea and Time Elemental. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of utility. <laughs> right. And I yeah. conflated them my memory of all three of those cards as Prodigal Sorcerer, which I was wrong about. Well, these next two cards are also examples of blue direct damage. Right. So we've already alluded to it. The next is Psionic Blast. Psionic Blast is actually a pretty um, simple card in concept. To you, for an instant, it says Sonic Blast does four damage to any target, but it does two damage to you as well. Steve, you have cast many a Sonic Blast since I've known you and probably before. So what can you tell us about the history of your this card and your use thereof? Well, the main thing I would point out is that the fun- the, the key threshold fact about this card is that it can kill Sarah Angels. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Where you need like a pair of bolts or chain lightnings to do that the same and just red. Sonic Blast is also kind of like a famous famous finisher. You know, you get your opponent low enough, blast, blast, you know, eight damage. It can come out of nowhere. You know, like Sonic Blast you on your end step, untap Sonic Blast you. That's a lot. I've done that a lot with blue red. Yeah, it really makes blue red counter burn so much better than counter burn became. You know, after this rotates out with unlimited. The card itself was reprinted directly in red in Time Spiral Block as Char, same exact card, which is pretty <laughs> right. cool. I forgot about that. Yeah. And this card shares... It was time-shifted, too, by the way. In that's right. Form. It was in the, the, the time-shifted sheet. This card is... I don't know if it's entirely unique within Alpha, because we haven't done the whole set yet, so I'd have to double-check, but it stands on a short list, at least, of cards that have been reprinted as player rewards cards with no text from alpha ah. yeah so you can get a textless psionic blast from the player rewards series uh back in the early 2000s which is actually kind of neat 
and kind of a strange choice for that sequence of cards because it was not it was not widely played as far as i know yeah it was had been in time spiral but this is just a really strange choice for player rewards in my opinion the card has a totally unique reprint cycle for that reason because it was an alpha beta and unlimited and then it it fell off after unlimited it was not in revised and then it was reprinted again in time spiral in the time shifted sheet which was the next printing so a, a ton of time elapsed and then it was reprinted as a player rewards card which is totally weird a totally unique printing pattern no other card has lived that particular life cycle and the the practical impact of all of that is that Psionic Blast is legal in modern, which is actually pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that is wild. <laughs> Isn't it wild? It's so weird. Yeah, so the other thing to point out about Psionic Blast is that, well, it has only been printed with two arts, and both of the arts seem to show the same exact effect, which is a a, a figure holding their head as energy comes out of it, which I think is kind of interesting. The the time spiral art is the same as the alpha art, but the the textless promo printing really evokes the same exact phenomenon in a in a different construction. It's pretty cool. I also want to point out that the card evoked a creature implementation of a similar effect, which is kind of a cross between this card and Orcish Artillery in the Legends creature Psionic Entity which is a five-mana 2-2 with a tap ability that says Psionic Entity does two damage to any target but does three damage to itself. And ironically, the the art shows a figure holding their head also, (laughs) like in Psionic Blast. Although, in this case, it's pretty clear that the thing doing the damage is not the the human but the the weird lizard creature. Um, So anyway, the the notion of Psionic being a a reflection of... um, I don't know, feedback, psychic feedback of a sort is was originated in Psionic Blast. And ironically, I think Psionic Entity is a cool card just in the Orcish Artillery vein because you, you have some combos where you can continue to use it and actually benefit. So Steve, Psionic Blast, you mentioned it and how well it matches up against the 4-4 creatures that are so ubiquitous in Alpha. Does that mean that you're playing it in your mono blue league deck? The maximum allowed, which is three, it's moderated. And I play four of them in my old school 94 decks, mm-hmm. usually my blue-red decks. That's just, you know, sometimes I'll go down to like two, depending on if I'm splashing black or... But it's it's basically better than Chain Lightning most of the time. Um, it gets yeah. a little dicey when you've got like a lot of Serendipifrites. <laughs> and you're, you know, a lot of da- self-inflicted damage, but... It's just a it's just a lot of damage in a, in a compact spell. I mean the, that that bridge between three and four is quite large. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Even though there are fewer Sanger vampires and air elementals in old school. Right. Well, you need it to to kill out a Serendib because it's three four. Oh right, Serendib though makes up for that. You're right. I want to point out that in Gamma, Psionic Blast is almost the same card. Three mana instant does four damage, but it doesn't do two damage to you. Oh, it, wow. It was just a straight up no drawback well, four damage spell in Gamma. From a top down design, you know, it does look like you're suffering at the time you're, at the same time you're doing this. I guess the question I have, Kevin, is why hasn't this been reprinted again? Is it just not good enough? Or is it just completely a color by color pie problem? I think it's the latter more so than anything else. It is a color pie problem. It was. 
it was identified as a color pry problem earlier than say prodigal sorcerer was right yeah. i think that's part of the reason why it didn't even make it into revised and i think that's part of the reason why the only printing since unlimited have been the novel ones right time spiral and yeah. player rewards i don't think this card fits into magic proper anymore and it's only a it's only a quirk of reprint history because of time spiral that the card's even legal in modern but char is only in one basically what two sets actually yeah char hasn't been set. printed one yeah char hasn't been printed nearly as much as i would have expected i mean it came out in ravnica and has been reprinted a couple of times but only but not, in specialty sets right nothing in a, a regular booster product yeah now that you mention it i am a little surprised that char hasn't been printed again but I, I don't know what the reason for that is. Maybe it just hasn't found its right spot. I do think Char is still a perfectly fine card. Well, let's move on to Psychic Venom, another in this line here that we've been, this thematic line here. So Psychic Venom is a funny one. For one you, you get an enchant land that simply says, whenever target land is tapped, Psychic Venom does two damage to target land's controller. Pretty straightforward, honestly. And a nice combo with Icy Manipulator. And you have already observed uh, a few times just about how kind of brutal this card is how efficient it is at two mana and how it can add up faster than you think it really does i mean it's it's the kind of thing i think if you're looking from a contemporary perspective you'd probably be very skeptical about but there's a couple of features that i want to bring to your attention the first is that it's just super efficient this is a turn two play that your opponent had you can play on your opponent when they have very little mana so it's Mm -hmm. very likely they're going to tap the land at least a couple of times to try and get their game plan going and if they don't, more power to you, right? Yeah, exactly. So if they don't, they've slowed themselves down considerably. The second thing to point out is that if you put a couple of these on a land, it only takes you tapping it a few times to make that lethal. And with an icy <laughs> right. manipulator or a twiddle, it doesn't take much. Especially if you can get three of these on a single land. Then it's, I mean, that's, tap this three <laughs> times and you're basically won the game. It is ironic that you can't really sidestep this by reducing the amount of lands you play, right? For the reason you just stated. Yes, you can yeah, get around it by getting mana from other sources, but you can just load these up on one land and it, the effect right. is kind of the same. Right. Yeah, it's I remember... Ve- it's a very brutal card, especially in Alpha, because it's... I mean, it's... you Think about this compared to a Grizzly Bear. Perhaps that's a better comparison, right? I sure. mean, it's both more disruptive and more rattling to have to deal with this. <laughs> and... In a way, it has haste, right? Because exactly. that's what I want. It, that's the main point. Yep. Yeah, if your opponent is trying to keep up with mana development with you, I mean, you got to assume that you're doing more than just playing Psychic Venoms, right? So if they want to keep parity with you, they have to keep tapping their lands and pair it with Power Sync, and they don't even have an option. I think that the costing of this card at two mana is an example of a misunderstanding of some foundational mana development kind of concepts in the early days and specifically in alpha and gamma i have a feeling that and i'm just i'm projecting here so forgive me but i have a feeling that the the mana cost is an allusion to the notion that you can avoid this drawback your opponent can simply not tap that land it's it's totally true now there are some exceptions. You can twiddle it. You can nicely manipulate it. But in practice, this is a drawback that can be sidestepped by the the lands controller. But I think that costing this thing at two mana was an overcorrection for that, so to speak, drawback. Because in practice, what 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 it comes down to is in order to be competitive in a game of Magic, this is this effect 
is amplified with all the other cards you're playing, either additional psychic venoms or anything else, power sinks, ICs, right? It's it's not actually possible in practice to compete and not tap your lands. <laughs> and or you succumb to the other incidental ways to, that they make you tap your lands. So I just think that this thing was probably costed it too because it felt like you it was avoidable. And in practice, it's actually not. Yeah. It's interesting. In Gamma, this card was just not included. This was one of those cards that was <laughs> added into Alpha. And, you know, who knows what the impetus was. It obviously shares a lot of lineage with other things that do upkeep damage and many of the other right. blue enchantments we've cited. I guess it just felt like they needed more of this effect, more auras and more things that did incidental damage to increase the diversity of ways that you take damage in the game. This is the kind of card, and by the way, it's a common. This is the kind oh, of card yeah. that if you got into Magic during Revised, you probably totally overlooked because it would never have seen play in 1994. But if you were playing in 1993, even through Arabians, this is the kind of card you would have undoubtedly seen around, casual or otherwise. The other thing about this card, Kevin, and I think, again, it's partly a byproduct of, of, of Revised, is the art on this card is kind of... Uh, how do I put it? Stark. There's a kind of, you know, venomous snake up front, and then these kind of piercing, you know, eyes behind it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it has a it has a very powerful, very powerful imagery that at least in among kind of like 93 aficionados um, is no small thing. Like this goes by snakes, you know, and and uh, it's a it's something that I've definitely have a much better appreciation of than I did before playing an alpha. I can say with authority that I did overlook this card. And as you said, revised common. So I had a stack of them. I overlooked it because I was not playing cutthroat efficient decks right at the time. Mm-hmm. And so the observation that I just made about design concepts from gamma, I felt directly. I, I looked at this card and I thought, well, that's lame. I'm going to put it on their land and they're just not going to tap that land. What, yeah. what good is that? Right. Like I didn't understand. I was not, tr- I was not building decks that punished my opponent's efficiency. I was not building decks with mana curves, any of that. So I strongly overlooked this card because of how, how inadept I was at, at punishing my opponent for mana efficiency. At the same time, this card lived in magic for, I think longer than it, w- it should have. Cause it was in ABU revised fourth and fifth and sixth. I think it lived far longer than it should have in Magic because this is just not a good effect for the game, right? <laughs> like your your Ankh of Mishras and your Dingus eggs and just your... The, this is not what Magic wanted to be. But as we know from a history lesson, Stone Rain lived in Magic much longer than it really should have too because, because R&D... They took the lesson from Alpha a little too much to heart for many, many years, which is that just that magic is supposed to have these kind of punishing effects, <laughs> be it hurting your opponent for playing a, a color of a spells, hurting your opponent for playing a type or quantity of lands, you know, too many colors, too few colors. The idea that you're supposed to just get punished for a whole bunch of different choices was was baked into the game for much longer than it should have. And I think that's a testament to why Psychic Venom existed all the way through 6th edition. You would never see a card quite like this played anymore. Yes, you get punished for doing some things still today, but it would be in a a more flashy kind of lightning rod sort of effect, like a legendary creature that did something like this and really drew attention to itself. 
not just a, a simple two-mana enchantment that said, I'm on the play and your only land is going to damage you for the rest of the game kind of thing. I think that's a very good point. There's a kind of, I, I will just call it the obnoxious factor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? exactly. That's what you're getting obnoxious. at. Exactly. Yeah. And there's also one other element that you've already alluded to this, but the art works much better in black border than in white. In black border, the the border serves to set the eyes in their proper environment, right? The dark background. And to, and to make the snake stand out more in the foreground. In white border, the white border seems to pop the light parts of the snake scales, which which works yes. and, and brings the snake yes. into the foreground, but also pushes the eyes out of focus. Yes. Uh, and it makes the eyes not the, the point. With the, you know, the psychic part is the, the, the thing that the eyes are evoking. So in other words, this is just one of many cards I think works much better in black border than in white. All right. Anything else on Psychic Venom, Steve? Nope. Let's talk about, well, not much about pure lace then. <laughs> I don't think I need to read this we've one. Already, this is, we've already reviewed we already a bunch of laces. We've already covered all the laces, yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything, what's noteworthy about pure lace? It has a nice art. It's a quite quite nice yeah, rendered Sandra bird by Sandra Eddingham. Yep. Yeah, that's, that's a nice much one. It. <laughs> How many cards did Sandra do in Alpha? Let me just make a note of this. Let's see. She did quite a few. She did a dozen cards in Alpha including the ubiquitous dark ritual and sinkhole. Oh, yeah, we God, haven't called out her pieces. art too much, but uh, she did some her real classes. Her pieces have an elegant simplicity, right? Yeah. Oh, that's right. I called out drudge skeletons. I, I didn't remember that one was hers, the evil dead oh, drudge God, skeletons. that's great. <laughs> yeah, so we've reviewed the laces and we've reviewed the obscurity of the art already. This one, I think, is pretty satisfying in terms of art, and it just so happens that she also did death lace, which has some very beautiful, just an incredibly well-rendered skull in Death she Lace. She was called yeah. for double duty on the laces. <laughs> yeah, and this, yeah, this the- is a pretty nice bird. So I think we can move on, Steve, to just, you know, the headliner from a <laughs> mystifier standpoint, Raging River. Uh, forgive me for a second. The, the text is small here. RR for an enchantment. When you attack, non-flying defending creatures must be divided as opponent wishes between the left and right sides of the river. You then choose on which side of the river to place each attacking creature. And attacking creatures can only be blocked by flying creatures or those on the same side of the river. <laughs> God, I love this card. <laughs> it's so cool. And I have to be honest, even though it's a total it's a total mystifier and there's a lot of language to be interpreted there, from a top-down design standpoint, I actually think it works really well. I've never, I've never played Raging River. Like I have like a collector's edition one on a lark, but I should put it in an EDH deck. It's just so fun. So I want to talk. So this card is incredibly cool. I want to actually make vivid for our listeners um, how this card works because the chances are that probably very few, if any, of our listeners have actually played this card before. And I have acquired right. one, and I haven't yet gotten to play it in action. But I think it's worth spending a moment. Just illustrating what this does. Maybe for simplicity, why don't we why don't we take it down to the Banalish Hero Plagrat example? <laughs> all right, all right. So, so one you're of us saying has, it doesn't really matter who controls what, right. but for the purposes of, I mean, I guess it does matter because whoever is attacking is the controlling the river. So let's you know, assume the, the river is not symmetrical. Yeah, let's assume that the hero's de- deck is attacking right now. <laughs> all right. So the heroes <laughs> control a raging river. This is actually a tricky one because (laughs) 
it gets really, really complicated with banding. Yeah. Okay. Let's forget this example. Let's go back to something. Example is really terrible. Let's go, when you let's go to the. Yeah. Good point. Let's go back to the example that we we did earlier in this episode. It was. Well, we can reformulate it, but basically, one player has a war mammoth, um, a scrib sprite, and a juggernaut. And the this other is the, player, the attacking player. Yeah, let's do that. And then the defending okay. player has, I don't know, a Mesa Pegasus, a Drudge <laughs> Skeleton, and a Phantom Monster. Wow, I'm not going to remember that at all. So Juggernaut, War, War Scrib Mammoth, Sprite, War Scrib Mammoth. Sprite, yeah. Okay, versus Drudge Skeleton, Mesa Pegasus, Phantom and Monster. Phantom Monster. All right, you got it. So the first player is the attacker and controls Raging River, right? Yes. Yeah. Who Do you want to go or do you want me to go? You go. All right. So what happens is that the attacker chooses left and right sides for their creatures conceptually. (laughs) You're either attacking on the left side of the river or you're attacking on the right. So I line up. Let's say I'm attacking with all my creatures just for the sake of demonstration. So I line up my juggernaut on one side of the river and I line up my war mammoth on the other side of the river and then... Yeah, see, flying up. creatures flying creatures basically ignore the river completely, so then it doesn't matter, but let's say I put my... <clears throat> so Juggernaut's on the right, War Mammoth's on the left, and I'll put my Scrib Sprites on the left, too. So the two okay. green creatures on the left, and Juggernaut by itself on the right. Okay. Then you're the defending you're the defending player, Steve. Yeah. Don't... You have, so the def- Sorry, so you have a, a Drudge Skeleton, and a Mesa Pegasus, and a Phantom Monster. Uh, just a process point, I think... Hold on a second. Yeah. The defending player decide divides their stuff up first, Kevin. Oh, okay. So, so you okay. might. So you know, I, you're right. I, I was processing it wrong. So in this case, <laughs> it, in this case, it's actually more interesting if you control yes. the two ground creatures as a defender. So that's yeah. so then everything I said would apply to you. I say I'm going to attack, but I've got the drudge skeletons and the two flyers or whatever, and you say then you have to pick which side of the river your two ground creatures right. are on. So what this is basically doing is trying to give the attacker an advantage. Normally in attacking, the attacker decides the attacking player decides who to attack with and the defender gets to decide how to attack. But R- Raging River tries to invert that a little bit by giving yeah. the the attacking player a kind of better attacking and blocking options. So so the so in this scenario, if you're attacking with the three cards, the the War Mammoth, the Pegasus, and the Drudge Skeleton, did I have that right? Did I messed that up already. And the, well, uh, oh, sorry, no, Juggernaut. I, I think Juggernaut. The, yeah. the presence of flying creatures in this example makes it less interesting. That's the well, problem. Why don't, well, why don't you give? It, why don't you come up with another example <laughs> on the fly? Just something simple. A, a better example is if both players have creatures of diverse sizes. Let's say okay. you're the defender and you've got a Drudge Skeleton and you've got an Earth Elemental. Right. Okay. Two decent defenders. Yes. I'm the attacking player, and I've got a War Mammoth and a Juggernaut. And, and a juggernaut. There we go. So it's just two versus two. So yes. now I'm the attacker. I have Raging River. You're the blocker, I so decide. you have to choose so, first. Right. So I'll put the Earth Elemental on one side and the Drudge Skeleton on the other. Yeah, absolutely. Good choice. So now, because I've got a War Mammoth that would die to your Earth Elemental, right, straight up, and a Juggernaut that would trade with your Earth Elemental, I'm depending on what my goals are in life, I might want to do the trade, right? If I want to trade, I'll put the Juggernaut on the Earth Elemental side and the War Mammoth on the other because I can trample over that Drudge Skeleton. Yes. If I'm interested in trading, I would do that. If I'm not interested in trading, I'm just going to put both my creatures on the Drudge Skeleton side. 
you'll get to block and regen the, the juggernaut, but I'll get through for three with my war mammoth and neither of my creatures will die and your earth elemental just won't get the opportunity to block. So in practice, in practice, what this does at face value, first and foremost, is just kind of divide the defenders in half. Right. In most cases, because it would be right. foolish to put all your creatures on one side or the other. Side, that just means because the attacker yeah. would just put the other side, right? Yeah, you have to kind of cover your bases to but, some degree. You at least have to hedge. So, so here's... Sorry, And go then ahead, what it does is it also lets the, it gives the attacker advantage, as you said, in terms of matchups. Right. So th- there's a couple things to point out. The first is that if you're playing two against one or, or one against two, if you're if it's attacking one against two, it allows you to pick your poison. You get to yes. you get to basically put the, the the defender. If your opponent if your opponent puts spreads the two defenders across the river, then you get to pick which one you want to block it. Basically. basically, if it's two if it's two against two, same principle. You get to choose which creature you want to block. You could actually put both of your creatures on one side, right? Um, and make one of them unblockable. Yes. Um, or you could just again pick your poison. Where things get really interesting. So basically, if it's if it's one against two or two against two, the the attacker is advantaged in terms of blocking selection, mm-hmm. combat selection. But if once you get three against three, then things get really interesting. Because <laughs> Absolutely. because what happens is the defender. That's why I wanted to begin with an example that's three against three. Because the defender necessarily has to assign at mo- at you know. So they at least put, one creature to one side. It's exactly. Got, it, two, the two-one split is probably the the default in a three-blocker scenario. Exactly. Now they could, if if the defender decides to put all three on one side, that means the attacker can get all three creatures through, which is just untenable. So it's yeah. going to be two-one, which yep. means that the attacker in a three-on-three situation with Raging River is super advantaged. Mm-hmm. They get to put, they can put all three creatures on the side that has one defender. Right. Right. And that is practically where Raging River gets kind of its maximum power. Is once you get to three creatures, then it's just it's really powerful. Now here's the thing that's interesting about it: in terms of opportunity cost, Raging River could be another creature. So yeah. where you actually begin to get card advantage is when you get to those three on three or three on X scenarios, because mm-hmm. then the Raging River is function functioning as basically a def- like an additional attacker plus. Absolutely. Because not only are you, this is a little tricky, but not only because you get to, the plus is that you get to pick which creature defends you, you're the creature that's blocked, and you get a creature that gets to become unblocked. So it basically gets like fear. Yeah. This is just another in the long line that we've already reviewed of cards in alpha that monkey with attacking and blocking, giving you the ability to sometimes to control it, sometimes making it unpredictable, etc. <laughs> this one um, is, you know, this one is the, I think the hardest one to codify in terms of the rules, really. It, the, the Oracle wording is not that bad, really. But in practice, it's actually pretty straightforward to implement. It's just that the strategic and tactical implica- implications are really deep. Yes. I actually am surprised to hear you say that. I think camouflage is just a huge mess. I mean, the, <laughs> the other it, one. It, it's the, yeah, it's more messy. I completely agree. I, I think that's almost impossible to figure out in terms of the rules. <laughs> I, th- <laughs> I think the tactical advantage of this is just clear. I think this is the most powerful one. Because it, it, you know, in any sense, I mean, because it just scales up, right? It's, you already get an advantage. As soon as you, the thing is, you need to have two creatures to make this useful. Right. Because if it's just one creature in the Raging River, well, I suppose it's actually useful if your opponent only has one creature. Because then you, if it, what this functionally does, it just gives your creature fear <laughs> or evasion. 
right? Right. If it's one on one, your creature is unblockable. If it's two, if it's two on two, you can make one of your creatures unblockable and then, or, and or pick your poison. If it's three on three, then you get to make one of your creatures unblockable and pick your poison. So I guess in one, in the one on one scenario and the three on three scenario is actually, it's kind of better than the two on two, which is interesting. Now that there are of course possibilities in which the two on two could be advantage, you, you, tricks, things like that, but, but that's kind of interesting that it scales in a weird way. And it gets far more powerful and especially advantaged on the attacker's side once you factor in any other effects, any simple removal spells, anything as innocuous even as an icy manipulator, right? Yes. Yeah. Because once you're dividing the defenders functionally in half, rounding up, right, in your favor, <clears throat> then it only takes one removal spell. Even in the case of three blockers, one removal spell means all your creatures are getting through, or one icy manipulator means all your creatures are getting through, basically. So it amplifies right. the effects of other things that give you tiny advantages in combat. I think for players who are considering this card, considering this card an old school environment, any old school environment, the really critical thing to figure out though is the opportunity cost of this versus a uh, right versus a creature. Yeah, absolutely. Like, would you run this over? I don't know another dragon whelp, you know. And it really comes down to how I think your deck is constructed in some critical ways. You need it. You need a critical mass of creatures to. You know, it's not. It's not like you're gonna. This is phenomenal in certain decks, but this isn't the kind of card you're gonna throw into a deck that has like six creatures. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, completely agree. And also, it rewards you having a certain subclass of creatures too. Like if you've got Shivan dragons, well, flying flyers in general just ignore this ability completely, but. Um. Well, okay, I take that back. Your opponent's flyers ignore this ability on defense. The only thing you'd be getting an advantage against would be creatures with reach, like giant spiders. You can get past a giant spider with this. They'd have to have two, right? Yeah. So uh, certain subclasses of creatures. If your deck's filled with shivan dragons and dragon whelps, you're going to ignore a raging river. You don't need it. It's really at best when your creatures have situational blocking interactions, Um, like, I don't know, Ironclaw orcs, right? Ironclaw orcs are a lot easier to get through when you've got a raging river in play and your opponent has to has to commit their creatures to one side or another. And similarly, if your creatures have, uh, let's say, low toughness, like you're attacking with, I don't know, a 3-1 or a 4-1. There's not a good example of that in Alpha, yeah, unfortunately, because <laughs> those they didn't start printing creatures like that until later on the ground, really. But if you're attacking with a lightning elemental from Tempest, which is a 4-1, like being able to choose your blocker is a lot better. The fact that Raging River only costs two mana, I think, is relevant to the equation in that you could play a Mons Goblin Raiders on turn one and a Raging River on turn two, and you could reasonably expect to get in with your Mons Goblin Raiders, the weakest creature basically in alpha, on turn two, just because your opponent is highly unlikely to have made two blockers by that point, right? Very good point. Yeah, there's a so there, lot of nuance here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. I don't also, think it, it makes gets, it a great card well, or anything, but um, but well, it definitely it definitely has an advantage over just having played another creature. I want to yeah. go back. Yeah, that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, it's, and also just at red red. I think it it, it really does. Again, in the one on one situation, you're just strictly advantaged, right? Exactly. If your creature can't be blocked. The other thing is that this gets really interesting. You can think of it like on a vertical, you know, a vertical dimension versus a horizontal axis, um, with it with certain kinds of evasion. Let me give like, you another example. So let's talk about evasion. Now, this card has has 
carefully excise flying out of the equation. <laughs> right, flyers can fly over to either side of the river at whim. Right. Um, but something like flanking but, first strike. Oh, I was going to say land, land walk. Oh, sure. There you go. Right, so like you've got Goblin King, and let's say let's say I have a Goblin King, a, a Mons Goblin Raider, and a Iron Claw Orc, right? Yeah, yeah. It really matters how your opponent lines up their defenders. You know, if they've got a Jade Statue, um, right, and you have a Mountain, well, two of those cards are unblockable regardless of which side they put it on. But you you're basically damned if you damned if you don't on the de- defense because. Right. Right. No matter how you split it. So evasion kind of amplifies this a lot, which is why they had to take flying out of the equation. <laughs> right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and later abilities that aren't in alpha further complicate things like, um, well, I guess there is one in alpha that, that would be relevant, and that's fear, right? Yeah. So fear factors in strongly. Your, yes. your opponents frequently only have one artifact creature or one black creature, maybe in a multicolored deck in uh, in the alpha context. And other soon-to-come combat abilities for creatures matter a lot. Flanking, I think, is an example that stands out in my mind, right? If your opponent... Well, the quality of creatures that your opponent puts on one side or another dictate how good your flanking's going to be. Ditto for Rampage and... Oh, and never mind protection, right? If you simply have protection from some combination of their creatures, then that makes their distribution exceedingly difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the more combat abilities and are relevant uh, damage abilities that you tack onto your creatures, the more interesting and difficult the Raging River discussion gets, especially for your opponent. Yeah, this is a fascinating card. I mean, just the, the number of scenarios you can dream up that create interesting tactical questions is phenomenal i'm surprised it was never in any of the early mark rosewater the puzzlings not that the puzzlings were <laughs> i mean the the thing about the puzzle the puzzlings especially the early ones or all of them is they're not really trying to mimic magic scenarios they're trying to you know they're <laughs> not like our scenarios episodes where they actually have realistic situations that are tough choices what they're trying you know kind of what's the play in the puzzling, it's like some weird niche interaction that you have to figure out to get to, to get to victory with obscure cards that would never, in a realistic situation, be found together. Um, but but Raging River strikes me as a as an effect that maybe it's just too binary in the sense of like too too like forceful and, and kind of in a gross you know way. But it creates lots of interesting options and decisions. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. I'm going to talk about lineage a little bit. And you might say, well, Kevin, this card was never reprinted. Yeah. It's reserved and it didn't make it out of unlimited. Well, it's fe- it's uh, impact is felt, though, especially in Invasion Block. So Invasion Block has a, a pseudo cycle of cards. There are two sorceries and uh, sorry, three sorceries and two enchantments. The sorceries are kind of they function kind of like um, Punisher cards. Right. But it's a little different, though. <clears throat> they all have the common characteristic of having the word or in their title. Death or Glory, Fight or Flight, Do or Die, Bend or Break, Stand or Fall. There's two classes of them. The sorceries operate basically on your opponent's creatures. Like Death or Glory says, it's a white it's a white sorcery. Separate all creature cards in your graveyard into two face-up piles. Remove the pile of an opponent's choice from the game and return the others to play, right? This is obviously a Punisher mechanic and is inspired in its root, I think, by Raging River. That's a little bit of a stretch, though. Let me show you two that are definitely directly inspired by Raging River. Here's the okay. first one. Stand or fall. 
a red enchantment, a red enchantment for four mana that says at the beginning of your combat phase, separate all creatures defending player controls into two face up piles. Only creatures in the pile of that player's choice may block this turn. So you straight up divide their creatures for them. Wow. And they get to tell you which ones can block this turn. I forgot about this card. I played a right? lot of Invasion. I loved Invasion. Man, I loved yeah. It. So that's obviously a direct descendant of Raging River, right? But it costs twice as much. <laughs> <laughs> Granted. Then there's another one, which is also, in my opinion, a descendant of Raging River and from a different flavor. This is the white one, which says, this is fight or flight. This says, at the beginning of combat at each opponent's turn, separate all creatures that player controls into two piles. Only creatures in the pile of their choice can attack this turn. So the same concept ah, flipped on its head in terms defensive. of what they can attack with. Yeah. 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 So obviously those two cards and the larger five card cycle from Invasion were strongly inspired by Raging River. I had completely forgotten about all of this. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, invasion was one of those that sets that, God, if people didn't play during Invasion, I feel badly for them because... Invasion was great. Invasion was like, it was like a... An, uh, a booster shot into the magic existence. It was just <laughs> such a, it was, I mean, a fun set to play at almost every level. Limited, invasion, constructed, you know, even standard I enjoyed when I ne- almost never play standard with invasion. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I would encourage players, especially EDH players who are listening to this, look at those cards with ore in their title from invasion because I, I legitimately think they're all pretty good. Fact Do or, or die. Being the big one. <laughs> well, factor fiction is huge, obviously. Yeah, do or die um, is the black one, yeah. and it's noteworthy because it says separate all creatures, target player controls into two piles, destroy all creatures in the pile of that player's choice. Okay, so it's kind of like an edict, but you get usually get more than one creature if they have two, if they have four or more. Right? It costs two mana. It's like super efficient. It's not like these other things that cost four and five mana. This one's only two. It's costed like an edict. And it won't, if they have one creature, it won't destroy it, obviously. And if they have two creatures, it kind of won't destroy the one you want. But as soon as your opponent has a reasonable team, it's going to just take a big chunk out of their team. And I think it's costed properly for that effect. So anyway, if you're inspired by Raging River, especially in a casual magic context, take out, check out these invasion cards. This conversation has made me really Jones to play with Raging River and EDH, though. <laughs> <I gotta laughs> well, <tell you. laughs> well, that's what I was going to ask you next. Is, have you... Did you ever play Raging River in five color, and how do you think it would be in EDA? Um, no, I never played it in five color. I was never on the aggro side of things. I think it's a, a passable card in an environment where you're expecting to attack and block. You're expecting your creatures to attack in quantity and your opponent to block in quantity, right? Yeah, alpha and as, <laughs> Yeah, and as such, I think it's actually really good for EDH. I think it would be a great card for certain aggressive strategies like Boros or Rakdos. And I'm already kind of thinking that I, I have a Naya deck that I might want to put it into because it's just so fun. And our yeah. conversation here has just made me jones about playing for it. Playing <laughs> it. Well, the other thing is it's perfect for EDH because you can only play one. In Alpha oh, League, you yeah. have the problem of, well, this the marginal utility of this card is zero. You know, I yes. mean, I suppose it could be destroyed. But, you know, well, how would they work? So let's look at this again. Under current <laughs> rules, it's whenever you attack creatures you, you control... Whenever one or more creatures you control attack, each defending player divides divides all creatures. So technically, this triggers not at the beginning of combat, but it, when you it attack, tri- it's in the declare attacker step. And, and no, not actually, but when you actually declare the attackers, right? Uh-huh. This triggers. So if you have multiple these in play, you wouldn't redo atta- attacking, right? It would just 
Well, that says the the second half of the ability is then for each attacking creature you control, you choose left or right. So would you so, redo it if you have a second trigger? It's a replacement ability, so it's not a trigger. <laughs> it's a it, replacement. It's, yeah. Uh, it, it's actually no. It's that's actually not a, a replacement. It's just a trigger. Oh. Replacements you can identify with instead oh, yeah, yeah. of instead. Yeah. So it's, this is a funny situation because it's kind of like power surge in today's world where it only works if you forget about it, right? Yeah. This card would actually trigger multiple times if you had multiples of them in play. And it doesn't do anything unless your opponent accidentally puts a creature on the left for one of the triggers and on the right for another. <laughs> if they do that, then that creature doesn't get to block. <laughs> oh wow because, the, because so they have they to be careful apply. to answer the same, same for both way. of them yeah which would mean <laughs> if you're playing this on magic online it would be like flusterstorm it could be really confusing to implement well, in multiples i guess what i was getting at is would you reorder blocking for the second resolution um because could you because could the attacker then decide okay i saw for the first one how they lined up i'm going to do it and then I guess I guess it doesn't matter because you have perfect information in both cases for the attacking well, side. But the blocking the blocker could theoretically change their decision, right? Because the blocking is not a function of the rule structure. Oh, you it's know a what's, function of the it's of the trigger here. You know what? You're right. The last sentence is really illustrative. That creature so this is referring to your attacking creature. That yes. creature can't be blocked this combat except by creatures with flying and Creatures in a pile with the chosen label. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, my no. word, Steve. You're right. It's exactly the opposite of what I said. Yeah. Two of these actually counteract each other. Right. Because it means every defender gets to say left and Jesus. right. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, it's it's really bad value. You never want more than one of these in play. Now, we should say that this is the oracle text. This is not actually the text on the card. So the text on the card is does not have that language. Yeah, it says then you choose on which side of the river to place each attacking creature. Yeah, see, the, the, you're right. The alpha wording ends with the, um, can only the, be blocked by flying creatures and those on the same side of the river. Right. And so what that tells you is that the choice is kind of um, physical. What's the word I'm looking it's for? It's distributed it, it, in a physical way. It's, yeah, it's, it's not it's, the, label. the choice is it's not, not label a based. It's, it's not a quality. You're right. It's not a quality of the creature that you can yes. apply more than one to. Basically, the alpha wording is is purely binary. Whereas the current yes. oracle text, you could actually have a creature that it, has both left and right. Right. Which means that the second Raging River, if your opponent knows what they're doing, they can nullify the first. That's the point. You know, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Right? I don't right? know how the rules would... Uh, uh, well, can you affirm what I, my in- inference there? Just yeah, yeah, yeah. I, totally, I totally agree with you, but I'm not sure how the magic comp rules support the, the phrase, <laughs> the chosen label. That's why this isn't in, probably not on Magic Online. <laughs> so, I don't know if the, the comp rules have a section for labels, uh, and I'm interested now to read that. I'm going to ask some of my judge friends about what happens when there are two Raging Rivers in play. That's really funny. I, I love Raging River. I always have. I know. It really I, is I, a shame I've never cast it. I need to rectify that. Uh, I plan on shortly. <laughs> Put that in the podcast. <laughs> All right. Anything else you want to say about Raging River? I mean, that's why I no. wanted to get to some of these examples because that you really see it when you, you know, map it out. It's hard to understand yeah. the implications just from a theoretical perspective, but if you get, you know, the way I think I did it, I think it helps make that more vivid. Completely agree. 
Next up, we have a, our far more foundational vanilla card, and that's Raise Dead. So oh, yeah. Raise Dead's pretty straightforward, <laughs> and at least in the alpha context, it's a, a single black mana, a sorcery, return creature from your graveyard to your hand. I'm not sure why they left out so many words from that phraseology, <laughs> return creature from your graveyard to your hand. Uh, but either way, it's pretty pretty straightforward. <laughs> and um, Raise Dead is obviously... Is obviously the um, yeah right. It's obviously the model for just many 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 cards. Like the exact phrase "return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand" is on fifty nine cards by today's standards, wow. and that's that's, that's only the cards that return exactly one. There's a raft of other ones that return a variable amount. They return two or more. They return different qualities of creatures. I mean, it's it's very difficult to enumerate the ways in which Raise Dead formed a whole subset of magic. Mostly black cards, but occasionally some green ones too, since green can regrow um, permanent cards very readily. Steve, I have to be honest, even though Raise Dead is a pretty nice card, pretty simple utility, I rarely played it when I was in my early years. I had a stack of them, and I just (laughs) never was inspired to put it into a deck. So I I think it's really interesting. So we just talked about... uh, Feedback and Power League, right? You've got mm-hmm. cards that are very functionally similar. Part of the problem with Raise Dead is that it's in the same set that has Animate Dead. Ah, good point. So, so for point. one more mana, why would you play? <laughs> you know, <laughs> why would you play Raise Dead? Right? It's like, um, and in Resurrection, right? And there are other great animate effects that put right. it directly into play. Um, I think that um, Raise Dead is an interesting tactical case though by the way one other thing raise dead is a common so it's Mm -hmm. you know and obviously in limited context raise dead is you know the effect is a lot you know you see it in limited all the time this kind of effect i remember there was a card i played limited dead ringers it's kind of multiple i don't remember i think that (laughs) that was especially confusing example yeah (laughs) Ringers. (laughs) well it's the one that i remember um but 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 there's in almost every limited that i can remember yes there's like a raised dead effect. You know, Almost lurking. every set has this at common in black. You're right. Yeah, lurking around there somewhere. You have to decide where to play it. Um, but I just, I think the, so here's the interesting thing. The interesting thing is in some tactical situations, I actually prefer raised dead to anime dead. So I'll give you an example. In the plague rat deck, I think raised dead might just be better than anime dead. Hmm, um, interesting. One reason. That point the, of power matters. The point of power matters. It's also the, um, there's a tactical decision. It's only one mana, right? And so it's basically the difference between Animate Dead is two mana to get, you know, an, uh, you know, the minus one X Plague Rat versus mm-hmm. Raise Dead, which gives you the, um, for four mana, you know, gets you the fully powered Plague Rat. And I think between two and four, the four is slightly better. Also, if you're playing the Plague Rat deck, you have to assume that your Plague Rats are going to get killed over time, mm-hmm. right? And so I think putting, like, a, one or two raised deads in the Plague Rat deck actually makes a lot of sense, just as an additional tactic, right? Instead of the, <laughs> instead of, like, the, what, the 22nd Plague Rat, I think it, the marginal utility might go towards another a raised dead, because you can, you can get a little, let me give you a specific example. Suppose you're on turn four, and you have four lands in play. You play a, ra- a plague rat, and you ha- you can't use that additional mana, right? But you could cast raise dead, and then on turn five, 
uh, you know, you can cast maybe, well, it's kind of a bad example there because you go from, you still can't play two Plague Rats on turn five. But but maybe you could, actually. Maybe you can get a Dark Ritual for one Plague Rat and then another Plague Rat. Whereas, you know, an anim- Animate Dead, I guess Animate Dead on turn five would still be better. You can you can game out a scenario, though, um, where the Raise Dead gets you both slightly more power and uh, maximizes your mana usage. My examples are bad, but they do exist. <laughs> and I think Raise Dead might be slightly better than Animate Dead in a play. You might actually play like one of each. Um, the other thing is Raise Dead gives you a little bit of a hedge because you get that power boost. So you can like, you know, um, block, kill your thing. You know you have the Raise Dead, but your opponent doesn't know that. Um, whereas with Animate Dead, you might have wanted to play it out there sooner. I don't know. There are situations where I think Raise Dead might be I'm stretching a little bit, but I think might be the tactical surprise might be a little bit better than Animate Dead as well. Yeah, the, I mean, this is these are very narrow margins that you're working <laughs> on here, right? Yeah. So uh, you can, there's no substitute for playing a matchup, and we're obviously talking, we're theorizing about a matchup that's pretty both narrow in utility it's and niche in, in a practice. narrow format. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but your point is well made. The in practice though so to put it in my terms in in ways that i play magic these days the comparison between raise dead and animate dead is just there's just no contest you haven't mentioned it yet but the simple flexibility of the fact that animate dead pulls from anyone's graveyard is enormous right yes and also raise dead while it is about as efficient as it could possibly be at a single mana is in my opinion slightly overcosted by today's standards you get more than just one card out of your graveyard's worth of value, even for a single mana and card by today's standards. It's um, right. Basically, <laughs> Raise Dead is is long outmoded and hasn't, and for that reason, hasn't been reprinted in a format defining set since Ninth Edition. So you get much more for your your money and your mana in uh, a Raise Dead type effect in Magic today. Good point. I mean, one mana is is hard to beat in terms of efficiency, but I take your point that there are other things grafted together that make it make it better, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You normally can scale up the effect maybe to get more than one creature. You can additional power. Um, you get other options like like something mills you for a little bit, so you get greater selection. There's just like so. So, for example, in one of the more recent sets, Zendikar Rising, the card the card Blood Beckoning is a sorcery for B that has kicker of three, three colorless, that says, or generic, I should say. It says, return target creature card from your graveyard to your hand. So it's raised dead. If this spell was kicked, instead, return two target creature cards from your graveyard to your hand, right? That's a textbook example of what I'm talking about. You, you just don't get only raised dead's worth of value for a card anymore. Yeah, it's, it's a good point. I mean, again, I'll go back to my original point. This card is just not going to see play over an animate dead. I mean, there's a simple... I mean, my, for God's sakes, you can pay... What's the reanimate effect that's one mana and you pay life and put a gristle brand into play? <laughs> it's, it's just reanimate. Yeah, there you go. Reanimate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're, that's that's an even more damning comparison for raised dead. Obviously, there's a much steeper cost in terms of resources for reanimate, but time has proven that we're much more willing to pay the mana efficiency and other prices in order to do powerful things than just pay one mana to return a creature to our hand. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I think that if magic design had been a little more open to flexibility and different kinds of designs 
in the early days of core sets, Ray's Dead wouldn't have lasted nearly as long as it did. In practice, it was in ABU and 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, and ninth. So 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, as well as some other ancillary sets like Starter and Portal, and then Conspiracy later on. So it lasted all the way up as a, 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 you know, a staple of core sets all the way through ninth edition. That's far too long for this Jeez. underpowered version harsh, of this effect. Harsh judgment. Well, I Get- mean, but it was it was all the way back in Tempest when we got what's the what's the buyback version? I forget what the something disturbed burial. I think in Tempest, a two mana version that had buyback. I mean, that's pretty early in Magic's life. For us to be getting a much more flexible or powerful version of this kind of effect. Fair enough. I, I just want to. I just want to say again that, um, you know, well, actually, I haven't said this, but I think the art on this is awesome. Oh yeah, and, Jeff Mangus, good stuff. And I think it's actually better than the art of Anime Dead. And if they had reversed those, the Anime Dead art would be. I mean, we already. I like the Anime Dead art a lot, but I oh, think yeah. in terms of simple, iconic image. No, unforgettable image raised dead is up there and um oh yeah and they chose well with Je- jeff mangas for this one because his style perfect translates perfectly <laughs> into this yeah yeah i mean it it i just want to say though this is not doesn't evoke zombie it does it evokes either like someone opening their crypt who's been long dead or and i think what makes it so cool you know what jeff mangas would be amazing at doing like greek mythology art Mm-hmm. And this Ooh. kind of looks like Charon, you know the the um, yeah, you know the the boat the ferryman at the uh, in in Hades, you know. And so I think that kind of nice ambiguity. It's both a very powerful image, and I love like the hair, you know, off the skull, the scalp, you know, the the bones opening, whatever this is. This is just great art. And I, <laughs> but I, what I'm saying is, I like the figurative ambiguity, the allusion to you know. You know the ferryman, but also the the clarity, the um, the fact that this isn't some sort of like lame zombie. It's like a very stark, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, uh, uh, corpse skeleton. Yeah, this isn't. Yeah, I agree. It's not evoking the slow zombie night of the living dead kind of feel here. This is really right. Yeah, you've raised this being, this person from the dead. And yeah. you know, just the swords, the plowshares that Mengus did also has that kind of feels like a kind of a, a snapshot of Greek mythology. You know, obviously there's a lot more going on in that art, but I'm just saying that style. You yeah. know, it's his. He has a thick brush stroke, but a very um, it it gives it a. I think his. You know, it's you're not going to see the fine line that we saw, and uh, who's got a great fine line? Um, Melissa Benson. A very yeah, or, fine or Mark Pool, Mark yeah. Pool, right? Very fine line. Anson Maddox is, I guess, not quite final line. Douglas Schuler and Jeff Mengus have a thicker brush stroke. Yeah, and I think for some magic cards, it's great to have the diversity of that. You know, like the fine yeah. line gives you really sharp figures. Mark Pool and Melissa Benson are probably the the one side of that, and Jeff Mengus uh, and Douglas Schuler on the other side. But I think that Jeff Mengus is like on the the you know extremists on that on that scale. Yeah. You know, and I think it gives it you know you look at Mons Goblin Raiders, look at his it gives it a power, a force that because of that you know that that thick line creates a deep impression 
that a fine line, like a Melissa Benson, you don't really see the lines, but it, it's more realistically rendered, but mm-hmm. somehow artistically less forceful. I don't know how to put it better than that, but that's the that's what I'm getting at. And this card in Swords to Plowshares, I think, really, really bring that into focus. You have really powerful imagery that would be less powerful if it was like just imagine this card with a more realistically rendered line. The art would be less forceful. Well, you love to hear it. Raised Dead is is a awesome card in its simplicity and the the power of its art. Let's move on to, I know, a favorite of yours and mine alike, and that is Red Elemental Blast. So Wait. we've already alluded it, alluded to it in many ways. Yeah. Red Elemental Blast is R for, incorrectly, an instant that says counters a blue spell being cast or destroys a blue card in play. No surprise there. The current oracle wording is obviously a modal spell. Choose one, which is counter a blue spell or destroy a blue permanent. And as we just alluded to a minute ago, it is incorrectly printed as an instant in alpha, which was corrected in beta with both the interrupt type as well as the much more dark and saturated printing of the card. And I know this is one where you and I kind of diverge in terms of our aesthetic preferences. But where would you like to begin on Reb? Well, we've already covered a lot of this ground with Blue Elemental mm-hmm. Blast, so we don't need to say too much. Um, just clearly one of the most powerful counterspells in alpha in the history of the mag- magic um, th- what I want to just emphasize, so we already mentioned the fact that it's interrupt, instant and interrupt and the beta version is, <laughs> the alpha beta comparison, okay, point one, alpha beta, <laughs> this is one of those cards where you, there's a legitimate reason to prefer the beta over the alpha because of the richness of the art. Um, yeah. and also because you might prefer the interrupt, although on the other side, you know, you get the alpha rounded corners and you get the cool fact that it's actually for contemporary purposes, correctly typed as an instant. Yes, ironically more accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and it's a misprint, which, you know, there's another niche, you know, demand for that. Um, but the second point I want to make is that it has to do with the fact that Red Elemental Blast was a card that people just didn't want to play main deck, but Brian Weissman did. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about the deck was his decision to play Four Mana Drain, two Counterspell, and two Red Elemental Blast. And what he decided in that moment was a couple of things. Number one, that blue was the most powerful color in Magic. Number two, that the way to get ahead in these Counterspell battles was to have Red Elemental Blast. Number Mm -hmm. three, that this is a template that exists today. That he was the first to figure out that one of the ways you get an edge in the the Magic-constructed early Type 1 metagame was to have cards that are predominantly useful in the blue matchups. And we have acknowledged that over time. So the concessions we made by playing Mental Misstep, right? Totally dead against Shops. Largely dead against, you know, Dredge in Game 1. Um, not good against a lot of Hate Bears decks. But phenomenal against Blue, right? Mm-hmm. Flusterstorm main deck. Very common. Um, again... Same matchup, advantages, disadvantages. Today, <laughs> Pyroblast, right? And it wasn't until Planeswalkers that people started... Well, two things happened to make Pyro- Pyroblast phenomenal main deck and contemporary vintage. The first was the restriction of mental misstep, <laughs> which makes Pyroblast great again. <laughs> make Pyroblast great again. <laughs> but the second, and earlier in time, was Planeswalkers. of course. But the truth of the matter is, undergirding all of that, is there's always a design space in blue decks 
for counter spells that are good against blue, right? That you can call it the the blue arms race, whatever you want to call it. There's mm-hmm. always been space for that. And I love the fact that there was a long stretch, Kevin, where people should have been playing Red Elmo Blast or Pyroblast and didn't. Right. right. They probably should have. Even before Mental Misstep, it just kind of went away. And Brian Weissman was just so far ahead of his time in doing that, and insistently so, from 94, 95, 96. It's amazing, Kevin, that even in old school today, if you go around and look at the deck, people who are playing the deck, look and see how many people are playing main deck Red Elemental Blast. Very few. I think I'm one of the few, and I play two, maybe even one or two, in my blue-red decks. And people right. look at me like I'm crazy. How can you not want to run this? It's so good. Um, <laughs> and, and I think contemporary competitive vintage players understand and appreciate that. It's old-school players who have a harder time. Because, well, they'll think to themselves, well, what about my mono-black matchup? Or what about my zoo matchup? You know, it's just it's just that darn good. Well, and I think that there are multiple periods throughout vintage history that exhibit that same phenomenon, that same quirk, which I would argue, I mean, I'm just picking one out of a hat here, but I'm thinking back to, say, the late, the late, uh, 2010, the first decade of this millennium. So 2008, uh, when Paul won the vintage champs with pitch long. Yeah. And he, and there were, Jimmy McCarthy and, and Brian DeMars were in that top eight with Strategic Slaver, right? We've talked about that top eight for a couple of other reasons in, in this show and, and other recent shows. But the point is, is that they had zero blasts in their Slaver lists back then. Zero. No Pyroblasts, yeah. no Rebs. Yeah. And, and I'm not here to decompose that whole vintage environment. But when you're talking about a top eight that featured the TPS and Pitch Long and other Slaver decks, as well as different kinds of control decks... And, you know, an oath. I mean, you have to believe that blasts were a little underplayed in those slaver lists. Yeah, you know where bat blasts were underplayed, Kevin. Mm. <laughs> they were underplayed in our psychotog decks. I was going like, to use that as the other example. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, at one point, I had five red elemental blasts, including power blasts, in my sideboard. Um, in in my like two thousand three, two thousand four, uh, um, psychotog deck control slaver. I mean, uh, control yeah. psychotog because. So much of what you were trying to do, especially in this Psychotog Mirror, was win the AK or Deep Analysis battle and or, you know, kill your opponent Psychotog. When right. They tried to go all in or counter Gush. But there were a lot of points where we should have been playing a lot more Red Blasts in the 2007 Gush era and the 2003 Gush era. You could yeah. have imagined having a lot more Red... I mean, look, Red Blast Blasts became really main deckable for that brief period when everyone was playing Flash and people were playing Tyrant Oath. Oh, yeah. But oh, yeah. there were periods where it just should have seen more play. Carl Winter's champs winning Psychotog list had only three Rebs in the sideboard. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. It would have been so good in the main deck of that of that environment. Wild. Yeah. Anyway. Yes, if we could go back in time and do some things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Kevin, my 2007 Vintage Championship deck, Grotog, I had one Red main. One yeah. Reb main. Two Misdirection, two Mana Drain, four Duress, four Force of Will. <laughs> and then three, and I had uh, one Pyroblast and one Red Elmo Blast in the sideboard. And that's a four gush format. It, it's, yeah. it is pretty amazing in hindsight. In a, in a gush and cunning wish kind of format, right? You still chose to play two misdirections in your deck over over another blast or two when people were launching four gushes at you and four merchant scrolls. 
Just think about how efficient <laughs> Reb is in that format. It's Good grief. unbelievable. Yeah. Yep. Lessons learned over time. Okay. You know, Steve, Red Elemental Blast, and I don't expect you to have an answer to this just off the top of your head, but if you take out the Power 9 and the, the Dual Lands, right, the mana cards, you take out Soul Ring and Mana Vault, take out mana cards, think about what cards from Alpha are the most played in Vintage today. And that list isn't actually very long. Yeah. Once you get past the powerful mana sources and the broken blue cards. Yeah, you got your Dark Ritual, your Swords to Plowshares. Balance. Yeah, Demonic Tutors on there. Um, Wheel of Fortune, still relevant. That list isn't actually very long. Once you get past the broken, the truly broken stuff and the broken mana. And so Red Elemental Blast, even though it plays second fiddle to Pyroblast today, for good reason... Um, is still on a, on a pretty short list of elite cards from Alpha yeah. in the Vintage context. In fact, it's the only counterspell that still sees play from Alpha in Oh, Alpha. good point. Yeah, it's been long surpassed by other free counterspells. It's a testament to the power of Reb, in context, of course, that it's still relevant as a spell that you, sp- you pay mana for. <laughs> We're so used to not paying mana for our counterspells anymore. Yeah. Reb is an awesome card. I actually have a, a kind of a strong affinity for it, even though the go-to for cards in this role today is Pyroblast, and for good reason, namely Dak Faden. The, the simple truth is, is that Reb could be substituted for Pyroblast and be functionally the same in probably 95% of cases, right? Um, and we've talked about in a number of contexts, both just now and in uh, past episodes, about how we... There, there may be cases even as soon as, even as recently, excuse me, as this year when we're supposed to be playing five or six blasts in a deck and haven't graduated to that point. There are some players, of course, who are playing a mixture of pyros and rebs in certain decks, but it's definitely in the minority right now. And uh, maybe there should be a few more than we think. So, Steve, you alluded to it, and I want to codify specifically. What is your preference among alpha and beta? Oh, it's funny you mentioned that. I actually, I'll tell you what my preference is. My preference is a perfect split. And Fascinating. Wh- what Why I like, that? what I like to do is I like to use one version for the main deck and the other for the sideboard. <laughs> really? Yeah, to keep track of it. So that's for your benefit in in D sideboarding. Yep. And uh, interesting. In old school, that's what I do. And it's you know six of one half dozen the other. Which one I play main deck? I think I usually play. Actually, I'm not going to speak to that because I don't remember which one is. But I'll choose one for the main deck and the other for the sideboard. Are you concerned at all about the small amount of information you're giving up to your opponent by having different copies? It facilitates de-sideboarding more. The efficiency in terms of that, I think, outweighs the information. Okay, fair enough. For old school. Well, I'm strongly in the beta camp myself for the aesthetic reasons. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, just, <laughs> I I actually really enjoy the printing that has interrupt on it because I feel like that harkens back to the original. Brings you back into the original feeling. Yeah, I, I enjoy that aspect of it and the uniqueness of it in today's context. Granted, this card in particular has been reprinted as an interrupt in paper more often than it has as an instant. <laughs> it's ironic that it starts as an instant and ends in, in, as an instant in uh, in the... Uh, M- what is this deck? This set called? In Masters 25, the most recent printing. That's obviously an instant. But the truth of the matter is is that there have been only two paper printings as an instant. The first and the last. <laughs> Alpha and M25, or excuse me, Masters 25, are the only two 
printings of this card in paper where it's an instant. All the other ones up till fourth edition were still printed as interrupts, which is funny. Yeah, I enjoy the interrupt language. I enjoy the super dark printing and just the 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 darker and more crushed uh, shadows of the art. I think I, it makes it pop a little more. I respect that. I respect that. Yeah. All right. Let's move on from one red elemental blast to a much less interesting red ward. Uh, <laughs> we don't need to. We don't need to dig no. deep into this one. But we should point out that as between all the wards, the red one is a little higher on the list just because red is more like more apt to be targeting your creatures in alpha than any other color. Yep. That's all That's I really all have to I'm say about say. that one. Yeah. <laughs> but we have a lot to say about the next one. Yeah, next up is Regeneration. Now, before so, you read this, I just want to say, whatever yeah. you think this card says, it's not what you think. Go ahead, Kevin. <laughs> There's a lot baked into a very few amount of words here. Regeneration is 1G for an enchant creature, and it simply says, green colon target creature regenerates. It's actually an incredibly, incredibly efficient language, even by today's standards. Obviously, the oracle wording today is regenerate enchanted creature. Yes. But um, (laughs) (laughs) the alpha wording wording is the word target is doing a lot of heavy lifting (laughs) in the alpha wording. So, Steve, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, yeah, this card is kind of screwed up in alpha. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, the main thing is that when playing with this card, you have to reasonably assume that it refers only to the you know, the creature that's enchant it's enchanting, much like mm-hmm. blessing, right? Right. Otherwise, <laughs> right? It's it's um. I mean, the the text of it is unclear on that. It does seem to be able to give anything regeneration. So regeneration is a little bit tricky in alpha. We've talked about it, right? That you know, technically in the alpha rules, it says. You know, let me give you the 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 bit out of the alpha rule book. Mm -hmm. Okay, so regeneration is a creature ability in our alpha rule book that says regeneration prevents a creature from going to the graveyard. So that would seem to suggest that it never goes to the graveyard, right? But then it says this ability must be used at the time the creature would normally be removed from play. Creatures that have already been discarded into the graveyard cannot be regenerated. Enchantments on a regenerated creature remain in play when a creature's regenerator is always tapped. A creature that is sacrificed may not be regenerated um so kevin i think you just have to assume that this card works like we assume blessing works that it can only target the creature that is enchanting enchanted by or with regeneration here yeah this is another one of those of many contexts in which the wording in alpha carries some weight with it in context that even though the the wording itself works under today's interpretation in a totally different way, right? Target creature right. regenerates is not dissimilar from a modern card like um, asceticism, which is an enchantment that has an activated ability to regenerate target creature. Like you could you could you could read the alpha wording in today's context, and it would could work as just a standalone enchantment, even though it's an aura, but a standalone enchantment that could regenerate any creature. And there's nothing wrong with that interpretation, in my opinion. It's just that historically that wasn't the way the card was intended and the original wording was as you said interpreted to be restricted to the creature that it targets the word target as i said is doing a lot of lifting because it's both referring to the target of this aura which is the target when you cast it but in the alpha context that concept of targeting in the case of auras lingered as the card sat in play like the thing that this is enchanting was still considered the target creature 
which is not really supported by the rules in any real way, but it was just kind of a, a shared understanding <laughs> by people who were interpreting the rules. And so, like, you could compare this directly to the wording on the, the spell Death Ward, which it's a different wording, but it only has three words. Death Ward says regenerates target creature, whereas regeneration says target creature regenerates, <laughs> right? And you could make the case that in practice, yeah. those two things aren't meaningfully different. But in the context of an aura within Alpha, they were interpreted differently. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some ambiguity around what is meant by target here. Um, right. The other thing, so the Alpha League has clarified that only target can target the creature that this enchants, but mm-hmm. they don't have a similar clarification for blessing. <laughs> which is which is comical. Yeah. And we can fall back on, as you said, blessing is a, is a good comparison, but we can also fall back on other creatures that, say, have the regeneration ability just built in. So, for example, the go-to example there is... Uh, uh, Drudge Skeletons. Yes. Drudge Skeletons has only one word. It is a black mana symbol, a colon, and then it says regenerates, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so you could take that to mean that <laughs> that extra words in the ability are granting extra flexibility, right? Similar for Uthden Troll, which we haven't got to yet, but same thing. Red mana, colon, regenerates. Like, you could take that to mean the, the the aura regeneration is giving you extra flexibility with the target creature part, which would be reasonable by you know through today's lens, but I think in the alpha context was not intended that way. <sighs> Similarly, if you look at uh, the card fire breathing, right? As we talked about before, fire breathing is just devoid of any targeting like blessing is. So uh, the precedent is muddied at best, even within alpha. That said, all the other auras, like, let's take a random example, like Cursed Land, for example. We've already covered that one. Cursed Land in the alpha context says specifically uh, one damage to target land's controller. Well, that's pretty clear, right? Mm -hmm. You're not retargeting Cursed Land every upkeep, right? You could make a case with a purely modern textual interpretation that every upkeep, you pick a target land. <laughs> does, does one damage to that land's controller, right? Yeah. Um, that is that is one possible interpretation of that, but we yeah. don't feel that way, right? Yeah. Uh, even through no. the historical lens, we understand that the target refers to the target of the aura. Yeah, I, I think that part... So even beyond that, regeneration suffers from a number of problems in alpha alone, which is just that oh, there's, sure. there's a lot of ambiguity around destruction, discard, dies, <laughs> you know... Um, sure. you know, which of those will trigger it? You know, it's on its way to its graveyard. You know, wh- what conditions trigger that? <laughs> so there's kind of layered ambiguities that, that make this a difficult card to apply. Um, yeah, I don't think there's much more to say about that. And I mean, you've gone pretty deep already about some of the flaws <laughs> in alpha, alpha, um, yeah, the only other thing, there's two other things I want to say. One is in gamma, this is basically the same card, except it only costs one mana, which is interesting. And the gamma text is creature has regenerate. <laughs> now you have to you have to understand how to interpret gamma cards because the activated ability is written up as part of the cost in gamma, and so there's a G and then another G with a slash up there that refers to the casting cost of the aura being G, and then the activation cost of the aura also being G. Yeah. So, but one thing that's nice about this gamma version is it clearly says creature has regenerate. 
Right. Which is not great language, but I no. think it's actually better at clarifying that it is the, the yeah. thing that the aura enchants. It's not until 4th edition that we get the the the, the additional t- words that say the target creature that disenchants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The artwork here is superlative, by the way. Oh, I've always loved this art. Um the that's Quentin Hoover. And obviously Hoover is known for, you know, the the sharp lines and then the the, the pencil style shaping. Geometric. Yeah. Yeah, lots of geometric shapes, but just the way this evokes regeneration through the the separation of this this man's arm and then the energy surrounding it and the bright light shining at the point where it's separated. It's it could be gruesome if it was a different artist, yeah. you know, who had done yeah. this. But the lines are so clean that it, it has a certain, well, it has a certain magic to it as opposed to being gruesome, which I really enjoy. Masterpiece. And all the different shades of green here. This is just another one. Like, again, another revised comment. I had stacks of these back in the day. <laughs> I played them occasionally. The The art on this really pops with a black border so much better, I think, because it highlights the background being a nice light tan color, which is, you know, another example of art uh, alpha figures being devoid of context, but there's so much going on with the character here that it doesn't need a context. I really like this art. It's very fun. I'd love to have a print of this on my wall. And for the sake of thoroughness, uh, regeneration was reprinted a whole bunch. It was all the way uh, most of the core sets all the way up to as this like M10. Yeah. M10. Was it in every one? So ABU fourth, Revise, sorry, revised fourth. It's six. It skipped sixth edition for some reason, but then it was in seven, eight, nine, ten. It was also in Ice Age and Mirage. So half kind of of the core sets, in addition to regular numbered core sets, a very strong staple up till M ten or up till tenth edition. Excuse me. Also, uh, on a short list of cards that were printed with one art and then back to another art, because the fourth edition version. And the fifth and the sixth, those numbered core sets all have the original alpha art, but Ice Age and Mirage both had different art. So it's another one of those ones that actually oscillated between existing arts. <laughs> the next piece we have, Kevin, is also a masterpiece of art. Oh, yeah. I've always enjoyed regrowth. And it's, it's interesting. I want to talk about that, but let's talk about the language first. For 1G, you get a sorcery that simply says, return any card from your graveyard to your hand which is actually one of those alpha wordings that's very close to the oracle, which is, of course, to return target card from your graveyard to your hand. Uh, kind of uh, no problems with this card in terms of interpretation. It, it specifies any card. It specifies your graveyard. It specifies from graveyard to hand. And that kind of, kind of avoids any ambiguity in the alpha sense. Yeah, I've always loved the art on this card, and I've always been impressed with how it has a nice combination of um, photorealism in the the tree in the foreground but then some nice some nice um not i would, couldn't call it abstract it's very clearly setting this in the context of a forest but the background fades and becomes uh blurry and inexact in a very satisfying way which i've always liked yes <laughs> steve you and i have obviously played regrowth both in a vintage context and, and i assume it's relevant in alpha league in an old school of course but i've played it just in so many casual and other formats every opportunity Except for modern day vintage, of course, regrowth is still, in my eyes, a staple of the game across many, many formats. Well, it's interesting you say that because when they decided to unrestrict regrowth, which was, let me pull up my timeline of vintage and I'll give you the exact date. So regrowth was restricted very early on. It was actually restricted in the 
in basically the, I mean, basically this the second announcement, second wave of restrictions, along with channel copy artifact and demonic tutor and wheel, but it was unrestricted in on May second, two thousand thirteen. So it had a long yeah. run yeah. on the restricted list, and it was when it was unrestricted, I freaked, I was, I was worried because specifically because because gush was unrestricted at the time and gush plus regrowth really gives you a kind of a furious way to abuse the gush bond engine with right. you know you can just gush regrowth gush regrowth gush regrowth and you're gaining you're not gaining mana through that cycle it's like merchant scroll for gush very similar to merchant scroll for gush in fact same amount of mana but what you're doing is you're drawing cards through the cycle netting at least one card each time and you're gaining storm you know, through the cycle, and eventually you'll get to more gushes, you know, that get that get you over the hump until you can regrowth. So I was really concerned about regrowth being a little overpowered at the time it was unrestricted. But I think what really made it clear that regrowth could be unrestricted was they had hit a critical mass of recursion spells. I think the real turning point was the printing of Snapcaster Mage. Oh yeah. And then you have a, a just a cluster of them now, right? Um with Jace Friend's Prodigy, Snapcaster Mage, uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist. You know, it's just, yeah, yeah. there's an overabundance of that effect such that regrowth was no longer kind of the fearsome. You know, the reason it was originally restricted is because it evaded the, you know, the, the curb, the limitation of restriction itself. And, um, you know, so you play, uh, whatever, an ancestral recall, regrowth. You don't want to, time walk is really the most obnoxious use of that. <laughs> Right, right. They didn't want people to be able to do that unbounded. And regrowth and time twister was a very important interaction in the early game because it allowed those unbounded recursion things to occur. In fact, yeah, regrowth on time twister and regrowth on time walk were far more important in in many ways than regrowth on ancestral. Well, and in the purely alpha context, in the early days of competitive magic, regrowth plus time twister was the only way to truly have an unbounded loop. Recall couldn't do it. And recall's right. been unrestricted for a much, much longer time, but that also, for other reasons, is not as efficient. It has additional costs embedded in it, so on and so forth. So it was a good decision to unrestrict, but one that I thought was a little bit risky when there were things that seemed safer at the time to unrestrict. Mm-hmm. Um, also, this was at a time when, you know, people were playing a lot of Delve spells. So regrowth, both regrowth and Yawgmoth's will were, had declined a bit in terms of seeing a lot of play. And, and you couldn't like, for example, just regrowth on the spot. You know, a fluster storm or a mental misstep like you could with Snapcaster Mage. And you also had to be deep in green, which isn't great. <laughs> um, in, I, I, so regrowth is restricted in, uh, both 94 ma- magic, old school magic and alpha. Probably appropriately so, but I think there's a case that you could unrestrict regrowth, especially in old school 94. And it wouldn't be, you know, overwhelming because you just don't have very many tutors to be able to like find an ancestral and then regrowth it repeatedly. But Eternal Central doesn't even want to unrestrict recall, so that's even more of a stretch, I'd suppose. Is regrowth ubiquitous in one copy in old school? I would not characterize it that way. It's used in the deck. I don't know if it's really used much beyond that. I it's certainly it's probably used in the Twiddle Vault in the combo decks, Twiddle Vault. Um, in old school 95, you get forgotten lore. Yeah. On top of regrowth. Which has its own value. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I don't think so. I don't really think it is that ubiquitous. It sees play think, certainly, but. Yeah. Do you think you would go up to four if it were unrestricted in the deck? 
Or do you think it would be like a two to three of? I think it would be the latter. Yeah. Yeah, I'm no expert, but that's my instinct as well. It's 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 not a given. You don't, that's the you thing. don't want to fan open a hand with two or three regrowths in it. <laughs> Regrowth has a much different value when you have, you know, a vamp, mystical, merchant scroll, and <laughs> demonic. Right, <laughs> right, right, right. right. <laughs> but in a format where you have demonic as your only real tutor, you know, that it, regrowth it just isn't the same. You're playing yeah. regrowth on things like counterspell. <laughs> mana you know, mana drain is restricted. So. Right. Swords to plowshares. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. I agree. And also, you didn't, I know you weren't trying to make this point, but regrowth in the past has functioned kind of like a, a dark ritual too, right? If you need to or you have the, the window, you can just regrow your lotus yeah. and play it again, right? Just for the mana boost. Yeah. I That's think also we, not the kind of thing you're going to do in old school with any kind of regularity. There were, there were regrowths used during Gifts era, but mostly it was just regrowth. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, regrowth is a fine card when in, we're used in conjunction with intuition and gifts ungiven, but that's just not where vintage is at right now, especially not in the universe where we've got uh, Underworld Breach. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it, it kind of pales in comparison to Underworld Breach by today's standards. And also, we, there's a deeper understanding that some restrict, you know, not all restricted cards are made equal. That you can class oh, yeah. up restricted cards into various tranches, right? Some that are like basically incredibly marginal. Some that are incredibly central, and then others that are kind of case by case. Yeah, and it's been a long time since I've sleeved up a regrowth in a vintage deck. Yeah, I think the last time I did was I probably I think I did it when I in in, in a uh, Gushbond deck. I know Matt, Matt Mose was a big fan of the of the regrowth Gushbond deck as well. And I recall it being part of an Oath package, maybe even in recent years. Because obviously Oath gives you access to a significant selection of cards via your graveyard. I don't remember when the last time I saw that was, but that's the last real functional application I can think of for Regrowth and Vintage. The card has a unique reprint pattern because it was an ABU and revised. It's on the short list of cards that were in Summer and then didn't make it into 4th Edition. So it was excised from 4th. And then... So revised is the last time regrowth was printed in a booster product that defined legality. The only other reprints since have been pure reprint sets. Uh, Yeah. 25th or 25 and modern masters. And then since then the mystery boosters. So the card is legal in modern because of modern masters, but I don't think, I don't think it's had an impact on modern at all. Has this card been printed in other with other art? Yeah, ironically, it's only ever been printed with two pieces of art. The ABU Summer one, and then the one that was developed or you know created for Masters 25 is the one for the last three printings. Ah, oh yes. Yeah. I sh- I've seen this on Magic Online. I should have remembered. Yeah, yeah, and it's on Magic Online. Yes, good call. There, This is a noteworthy regrowth in particular in that it's on a short list of cards, which I've called out earlier, Hypnotic Spectre, and um, I already forgot what the other one was that I cited. Icy Manipulator, that's what it was. That has The alpha version has been printed in foil. In a, and in this case, it was a judge printing in 2005. But because the card is so sparsely playable across all of Magic, the judge printing is not even that expensive anymore. Ah, so you gorgeous. can get this alpha art in foil if you want. Now, I have to say, they crushed the, the colors a little bit in the, alpha, the, uh, sorry, the judge printing. And so it doesn't work quite as well, in my opinion. But still, if you're a foil aficionado, you can get this elf art in foil, which is pretty cool. Neat. 
and I just want to point out from a lineage standpoint, Steve, this card is still the model for the regrowth effect to the point where we got a modal dual-faced card in Zendikar Rising that is just basically regrowth. It's actually more like Recollect. So it's 2G for a sorcery. It says return target card from your graveyard to your hand. But it's modal dual-faced, which means on the other side, you've got a, a tap land that produces green. So it's still the model for this kind of single card recovery. But there have been many other intervening versions that have been stapled onto creatures like Eternal Witness and made into scaling effects like Nostalgic Dreams and, uh, you know, the All Sun's Dawn and other things <laughs> like, I don't know, Praetor's Council. I mean, card. this... Yeah, yeah. This card has scaled all well, the way from one card up to your whole graveyard well, in we, green. We have so many recursive cards, but there's just mm-hmm. nothing that's just this universal in scope. Yeah, yeah. It's the the classic is still there. I'm of the opinion that so. In your opinion, Steve, do you colloquially refer to returning a card from your graveyard to your hand as regrowing it? Uh, I refer to it as regrowthing it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's fair. I to be more specific to the card, right? Yeah, I think that this is on the cusp of being Keyword. keyworded the way <laughs> Mill has been. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I don't know. The, the case for that's not very strong because this card is not ubiquitous oh. by today's standards yeah. or anything. But I, I think there's a case for saying that you could keyword regrow. You could have like regrow one or, you know, with a colon yeah. or something. Yeah. Good point. Okay, so from regrowth any card to regrowth a creature, so to speak, <laughs> we have <laughs> resurrection. Uh, we've already talked about this in a number of contexts already, but for clarity, 2WW Sorcery, <laughs> take a creature card from your graveyard and put it directly <laughs> into play. You can't tap it until your next turn. <laughs> now, obviously, this language has been cleaned up a little bit, and I think it's hilarious that it says you can't tap it until your next turn. There's That's kind of some overwrought statement, right? The idea here is that it, it still has summoning sickness, like if you'd cast it normally, which I'm surprised they didn't have language more like that. But um, the simple truth is this is the original Zombify. Like this, this effect has been kind of shared by white and black over the years. And we've already alluded to how the unconditional resurrection is still very powerful as compared to the half as much animate dead from Alpha, yeah. right? Um, Steve, give us your thoughts on resurrection, especially on where it sits in the competitive uh, spectrum. Well, this was a card that I actually noodled with back in the day. You know, and then quickly jettison through tuning, um, hmm. for several reasons. One is that I just didn't have enough creatures to support it, so it would just you know clunk up in my hand. Secondly, uh, I realized that, that when you there's a trade-off. The fewer creatures you run, the the more you want to protect them, right, or, mm-hmm. or clear the way for them rather than rely on recursion to put them back into play. Um, but putting it directly back into play for four mana, any creature, I mean, that's not a terrible deal. For white, no, you know, no, and you can get a you can get some really good creatures into play. The problem is, in just old school ninety four through fallen empires, it's not quite enough. You know, usually what you're in reanimation strategies at that stage, your best targets are trike, tetravis, and deep spawn. You know, you can (laughs) even in like a eureka strategy, the elder dragons aren't very reliable because they're hard to upkeep and um. You know, you need like a concordant crossroads to even give it one shot with them. So, so the the problem is that most of the creatures really top out. It's six to eight mana, you know, and so right. resurrection. At which point, paying four to get one back is not that good of a deal. Even if you bend it with a bazaar, 
you know, or a yeah. Jellum tome. So, so that's exactly the problem this card suffers. In contemporary magic, it's just too expensive anyway. Um, and you have, like you said, one mana reanimate that does mm-hmm. the same thing. Uh, but it's, it's certainly a card I considered. And I think in Alpha League, it's a card that people, some people play with it uncommon. Uh, I could see people playing with it, you know, as a, especially if you have like a couple of hard hitters that you want to be able to get back if you assume they might die. I don't know what yeah. the, maybe like a Mo, Fat Modi or something like that. Yeah. Uh, the, the art is also pretty cool. <laughs> you know, like a religious figure, you know, and, and this is a case, by the way, where the Dan Frazier swirl art does kind of double duty. It gives you an abstract background, backdrop, but it also kind of reinforces the, you know, the, what do you call it? religious, you know, or spiritual or, you know, powerful yeah. connotations of what the art's talking about. Yeah, I, I'm with you on the background. It's interesting how it is still obviously just more of that swirl paint style. But at the same time, in this case, in particular, it could be interpreted as being some energy or some amorphous power that's going on as part of the resurrection process or ceremony here, right? When in reality, we know this is just more contextless background in Alpha. (laughs) You know, it's funny. If Dan Frazier were not already famous for doing this on other pieces of art then I think that interpretation of what that meant would be more reasonable. Yeah. But we well know that he just puts whatever he wants behind some figures sometimes. <laughs> well, I think he's looking for complementary schemes. And in this in this case, I think he hit the nail on the head. The color scheme is pretty wicked. I think yeah. it's great. But especially also, as in but also, comparison to the clothing on the figures. But in, in, some, in, in terms of some sort of like incantation or chant or, you know, whatever, that swirl gives you a, a kind of... A, uh, a, ta- a tactile sense of, you know, uh, that these people are in the eye of some mystical incantation. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. The lineage of this card, I know we can talk about a lot of things here. The lineage of the card is pretty interesting because, as I alluded to already, this was shared by black and white for a long time and still to a degree is. But where it was kind of evenly shared for a long time, it was right about... Yeah, the printing of Zombify, I would argue, that, that which was in Odyssey, which is just exactly this card, except for 3B, in all other ways exactly the same. Uh, it was right around that point that Black just took over and dominated this effect. White still shares part of the color pie with Black in this regard. Like There's some white-black legends and or um, planeswalkers that, that share this effect in other ways. But just the straight-up language, return target creature from your graveyard to the battlefield, is dominated by black in, yeah. in the modern era. There's lots of gold cards that share and straddle this effect. But if you look at all the, the monocolored cards, this is entirely a black effect, basically, since I guess the last white one that did it on its own was an Avacyn Restored, which is getting to be pretty long ago. Well, th- I think one of the things I've observed through this process is there's more color pie sharing than you're comfortable with <laughs> <laughs> well in this case uh, this in one alpha. i mean in alpha I, I guess i don't know how to articulate my feelings about the card resurrection i think it works for white i think that it's taken a long time throughout magic r&d's history which is beyond the scope of this show right now to understand and articulate and implement the ways in which white should have portions of the color pie 
And in the modern context, the card Sun Titans is 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 kind of uh, bandied about as an example of the the kind of reanimation slash regrowth that white should be best at, but it's very narrow. And for for comparison or for our audience benefit, Sun Titan, it's a six mana Titan that when it comes into play or when it attacks, it returns target permanent with CMC three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield, which is simultaneously more flexible than Black's ability to just return creatures, but also more restrictive in that it doesn't allow you to cheat on mana costs, which is one of the primary benefits of reanimation historically. Which is why the card Reanimate frequently puts Gristlebrand into play, right? And why the card Oath of Druids frequently puts um, an Eldrazi or a Gristlebrand or a Niv Mizzet into play, right? You're cheating on mana cost. White's ability in this spectrum has become narrowed over time. And I don't know if it's an entirely purposeful, conscious choice by R&D because it's a decades-long process. So yeah. it's, hard, it's hard to pin down. Yeah, it takes, again, a, it takes some, a long time. to. It's like turning the Titanic. It takes time to turn right. the color wheel. <laughs> Right, and I'm and I'm not trying to be critical of them in this regard, even though their treatment of white's color pie is deserving of criticism, but that's not my point. My point is simply that this notion of reanimating creatures is, I still think, part of white's scope, but it shouldn't be as literally direct as blacks. Fair it, enough. They shouldn't have zombify anymore, <laughs> but they should share in this effect and with certain limitations and certain other power that black doesn't have, right? I do believe white should be able to bring back enchantments and artifacts, for example, in a way that black should never do. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying I think this is, in alpha, it's it's not perfectly correct, in my opinion, by today's standards, but it's also not too far off. I'm not there going a lot to of things in alpha. you about anything about that, so... <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of things in Alpha that were way off. This is not one of them. This is not way off. Uh, and to support that, I would point out that even though Resurrection has very few printings, like ABU and Summer, this is another... Oh, that's interesting. This is another one of those cards that was in Summer but then didn't make it into Fourth. This card has only been printed since... Basically, since revised in Time Spiral in the Time Shifted sheet. So, like Prodigal Sorcerer and others. And then in uma and mystery boosters so reprint sets since then you know so the last time this card was legal in a format was another this is another time spiral one but really revised is the last time that it matters so again the card's technically legal in modern because of time spiral but that's not that's a caveat more than anything uh also by today's standards this art from time spiral is not the sort of thing you would see at least not well, for a number of reasons, right? You might see a reinterpretation of this kind of art in the Avison kind of context, but not with this direct kind of Catholic imagery. Even though it's not a, a pure crucifix or anything, this is obviously Catholic uh, homage here. And also the reverent way in which this woman is appealing to this priest, I think, is not the kind of values that magic wants to evoke anymore. Yeah, I was going to just uh, not comment on that, but yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I, I love the uh, kind of monochromatic aesthetic of this card because the art plays into the white frame with a black border in a very appealing kind of way, even yeah. though I don't really like the, the construction of the art and the composition. Yeah, the, the elements the fit nicely together, all of them. The background, yeah. the foreground, the frame. Yeah, it's kind of fun to look at in that regard. All right, so enough about resurrection. Let's move on to... So we got a, kind of a, a spree of white cards I would here. just say, I, I don't know that I would peg this as a catholic there's you know the uh, there's enough ambiguity here that it could have a number of different <laughs> religious contexts i would just say that 
Well, that's fair. I'm reading a fair bit, in, a fair bit into the combination of robes and the shape of the hat. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. But, but you're right. It's not a purely Catholic image. Okay. I just think it's strongly implied. That's all. Let's move on to reverse damage. So reverse damage is a fun one. We can talk about the implications of this wording a lot. For one WW, it is an instant. All damage you have taken from any one source this turn is added to your life total instead of subtracted from it. It seems pretty clear the top-down intention here, right? And But the interesting part, and I'm going to ask you to talk about the implications, both from an alpha standpoint specifically, but just how the rules have supported this over time, I guess. The implication of how you reverse quite literally, a damage you've already taken is a fascinating one to me from a rules implication standpoint. And it's no coincidence that the Oracle wording today doesn't do that at all. It it looks forward in time to the next time a source would deal damage and it prevents the damage and then you gain that much life. It doesn't reverse anything anymore, so to speak, not retroactively. Steve, do you have experience with how this card is implemented in Alpha and some of the, uh, the cases? I was cases? afraid you were going to ask that question. I think this <laughs> it's is okay. I think, the answer is no. Well, no, I don't. But I think this card is a is a matter of some contestation. Um, yeah. Look, it just we've already discussed. I can't remember the card we discussed, but retroactive <laughs> things are just very difficult in Alpha to figure out how far you can go back. Fortunately, this one has the phrase this turn on it, at least, which helps a lot. At least, it right? helps, but it doesn't resolve all <laughs> ambiguity here. Well, and I think that the, the most noteworthy conversation you're talking about is with Jade Monolith, right? Yeah. We talked about how far, because that one doesn't have this turn on it, and it conceptually thinks it could look far back in time across turns. <laughs> yeah, that was laughable. Yeah. Yeah. In this case, you know, I think there's no clarification in Alpha League, but I think the assumption is that. Um, well, I think the challenge is what if, you know, uh, that you need to play this before you, here's the question. If it's lethal damage, what happens, right? If it's sub-lethal damage, it's yeah. pretty easy to, to address, but it seems to state that you must have taken the damage, right? Yeah. Agreed. Especially since it refers specifically to, um, subtracted from your life total, right? Right. Like it, it all appears to be past tense. And it's I not, agree with you. it's not until revised that people die at the end of the phase. So in the And that's meaningful. <laughs> exactly. So you you could go negative in revised and then use reverse damage to bring yourself back up. But that's not really possible enough in first edition rules. Yeah. And I think that plays strongly into the oracle wording of this card today. There's there's no such thing as well, platinum angel notwithstanding. The rules don't normally support you being in a negative life total or having taken damage and then reverse that in a practical way. So now this one looks forward to preventing future damage, which works very well in practice, obviously. Well, I mean, so it means that if you're attacked, you can reverse it. And if you have sublethal <laughs> direct damage, you can reverse it. Yeah. Tendril, there are certain... Tendrils from Agony, those are different copies though, right, Kevin? Yeah, those are all individual sources, right? Tough. You can only ever reverse one. It's also worth noting that the alpha version of this card refers specifically to damage, and so does the oracle wording. Yeah. So you couldn't interact with the tendrils regardless, and anything that lose, that causes you to straight up lose life, reverse damage, uh, well, as the title implies, it only affects damage. <laughs> yeah, but the current oracle is prevention. Prevents the damage. Mm-hmm. And then you gain life, yes, yeah. exactly. So prevention is very different <laughs> than this concept. It is. Yeah. 
And there are certain, you know, even in the the world of living until the end of a phase, right, with a negative life total, the there are certain tactical and strategic implications because you could manufacture a scenario whereby your opponent has a source and the damage from that source could scale up to, in a way of their choosing. Say they had an orcish artillery with uh, instill energy on it, right? Yeah. They could damage you multiple times with that same orcish artillery inside of one turn. Is that one source? That's mul- yeah. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> my understanding is is that uh, the same orcish artillery damaging you twice in a turn, that is still one source. Because the orcish artillery, the same orcish artillery re- remains the the source of both of those damages if they untapped it and did, and did it to you twice. And so in the alpha context your opponent could have some options to choose how much they choose to damage you, which could be for very good reasons above and beyond your life total. Yeah. You know, you've in alpha, you got lots of damage prevention and life gain. You got your, uh, I don't know, you got your healing salve and your guardian age and all that jazz. So there's a, there are multiple reasons in the alpha context for the opponent to kind of shoot for some overkill to get around healing salve and Samite healers and other junk. The, that plays well in, in practice into this card because it means that's all the more life that you could reverse after the fact and we're going to have a similar conversation in a little while when we get to the card the black version of this card which is functionally has all the same concerns Simi- which is simulacrum yeah. yeah even more concerns i think though but <laughs> even more concerns i completely agree um so i don't know i don't know what else to say about this card steve i mean this is this is a rare and my history with this card is scant. I did I did open a couple in my day early on, and I did cast a couple in the revised context, and it was pretty good. You know, your opponent got in a, a beefy hit with their Shivan Dragon. It was pretty nice to to undo that and then some. So that was pretty cool. But otherwise, I don't have very many thoughts about this card. I just I've always just kind of in, encoded it as having you know rules nightmare in the alpha context. But then once they got beyond the damage prevention, sorry, once they got beyond the retroactive part and just positioned it as damage prevention, which I guess you said that that happened fifth edition, I think. Uh, damage then, prevention. The damage prevention step was brought in with fourth. Okay, so now the fourth edition wording of this card still has the word retroactively on it. <laughs> so does the fifth edition. So it wasn't until sixth edition wow. that they made the card not retroactive in practice, at which point it also became pretty boring and, and not interesting. The card was printed in four, five, six, seven, and eight. Oh, sorry, four, five, six, seven, and nine. Excuse me. So it's legal and modern. Yeah, I don't have too much else to add except for the fact that um, while Damian Willich did a nice job at rendering this woman's face, I think it's kind of inexplicable why this is the art for this card. Well, is this card in gamma? Is this card in gamma? What a fascinating question. Let me double check. Yes, it is. It costs three mana, is an instant, and says damage taken from one source is added rather than subtracted from your life total. A simpler wording for yeah. a simpler time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah so, that one just opens up more ambiguity as to whether or not it's meant to be retroactive or not. So this art, Kevin, <laughs> just toggling back to the art, uh, this yeah. is kind of like a Farrah Fawcett, gauzy, <laughs> 70s, you know, portrait. Very, yeah. very odd, very dated, but kind of a cool addition when you're perusing the the magic cards, you know, the alpha set. Yeah, this this suggests to me that this is somebody that Damien knew. Yeah, very possible. Right? There's a very high likelihood that this is just a person that Damien knew. Well, anything else on reverse damage, Steve? Nope. 
That brings us to a simpler card, right? Righteousness. Not too bad. Righteousness is pretty straightforward. A single white mana for an instant that says target defending creature gains plus seven plus seven until end of turn. I'm pretty grateful that the phrase until end of turn is on this card. You can envision a world where it wasn't, (laughs) right? Um, This card is one that I remember opening in a pack and looking at and going, wow, plus seven plus seven for one mana. That's huge. I could block a, you know, I could block a Lord of the Pit with my giant spider. That'd be amazing. And then I never, never put it in a deck and never cast it. The, the de- defensive <laughs> yeah. limitation was just too much. Th- this card is just amazing when you look at it. You're like, holy moly. Seven <laughs> plus seven plus seven, it's enormous. But right. once you put it into practice, then you begin to see the limitations. By the way, I thought it was an inspired choice also to have a female figure, which is nice. There's a little yeah. bit of gender diversity in, and not in a stereotypical uh, gender role. Unlike, yeah, unlike I agree. the image on reverse damage or resurrection. And for some reason in my mind, I've always equated the figure on this card as a Banalish hero or the Banalish ah. hero. Um, there's not a lot of commonality there. You know, a white woman with a, a short haircut. The, the outfits are pretty different, though. I mean, it seems pretty clear that this is just a, a kind of a straight up knight or knave kind of, you know, st- uh, tropey design from D&D. But I do agree with you that it, it, there are a lot of ways they could have gone with this art. And this is they sidestepped some some pitfalls by using this one yeah i like the art a lot and i like it even more now that you brought it maybe i should get one of these for the banalish hero deck <laughs> <laughs> it would definitely be a nasty surprise for a playground yeah. <laughs> uh it's probably just super overkill <laughs> i do th- i genuinely think that death ward would be a superior choice i have in that i have death ward in there already kevin i've been using yeah. it even before you mentioned it it's 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 a cool <laughs> surprise yeah fair enough uh, yeah, there's not really too much else to say about righteousness. I mean, there is a bit of historical... Well, so <laughs> this card existed for much longer than I think it should have, but it's spotty. Alpha Beta Unlimited, it was in Summer, it was in 4th and 5th. Then it skipped a whole bunch of sets and was in ninth, 10th, M10, and then, for some reason, Throne of Eldraine. Like... I have no idea why this card would came back for Eldraine. I think it was mostly a kind of a flavor thing because, well, there's an Arthurial, you know, bent to the original theme of the thing. Yeah. Inspired by the original art. And, and the Eldraine card kind of plays with that because it has kind of an Arthurial knight in the image, although they have their back to the camera in this case. But either way, the it's kind of a, str- a really strange and unique reprint pattern to go to skip a bunch of core sets between 5th and ninth, and then... 9, 10, 10, and then Eldraine. It's, yeah, it's, it's a unique reprint pattern. Um, How long ago was Eldraine? I lost track of that. It was just last year. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and Why is it so unmemorable <laughs> in, the, in the year of, uh, I guess that's right, it was in the year of Modern Horizons <laughs> and everything else. Yeah. So it's worth noting, too, that this card is a rare in Alpha. All the way up through 9th edition, it's a rare, which is also, I think, is a, clearly a mistake. It was a rare in 10th, Sorry, it was a rare in 10th and then an uncommon in M10. So two consecutive printings with exactly the same art and exactly the same text in consecutive sets, and it just went from rare to uncommon. And then it's an uncommon again in Eldraine. I think it's an, it's an okay card. You could print this at common now, and it wouldn't be a big deal, I don't think. The, the limitation on defense means that it's purely a, a limited card, and so it's just kind of all about what you want your limited set to be about and what you want the combat tricks to be like. <coughs> It's. I mean, right. it's a cool card, though, when you play it. 
in in any format. It's a it feels good. I think playing this card. I've done it. <laughs> you know, that's a good point. When it's good, it feels really good. Interestingly, in the gamma version of this card, which is one W, sorry, a single W for an instant, it says defending creature has plus five power this turn. Huh. Ostensibly plus five plus O. Yeah. If you read it literally. That's a dramatically different card, isn't it? Very. Not only a smaller effect, but also strongly tilted towards vengeance, right? Yeah. You're going to go down with the creature (laughs) you're fighting, which is a totally different experience from plus seven plus seven. I also want to point out, Steve, there's obviously some parallel here with giant growth, right? There's no surprise yes. there. But the the intersection, famously, the intersection of giant growth and righteousness came in Urza's legacy in the card Might of Oaks. Is that green three? Yeah. Four mana, instant target creature gets plus seven, plus seven. So it's the point at which giant growth got large enough to match righteousness, <laughs> but it costs four mana. It's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And obviously, well, I don't know if it's obvious, but... R&D has been experimenting with how high you can take both a temporary combat trick and also a permanent aura to the point where (laughs) Ikoria had a a regular creature enchantment that just says enchanted creature gets plus 20 plus 20 in Colossification. (laughs) So that costs seven mana and it says when Colossification enters the battlefield tap enchanted creature. So you can't can't, attack that turn. uh, Yeah, with other shenanigans you can't attack that turn. But They've taken these things to the extreme recently, and so far it hasn't broken magic, right? Seven mana plus 20 plus 20 has not dominated tournament magic or even casual magic in my experience. So so just on that point, that specific point about mm-hmm. design, you know, and aura versus instant, you know, we, we talked about this a bit in the context of jump versus flight. I think the instants are more exciting. I think they're more interesting. And I think that they create more fun gameplay. Uh, but the, the one exception is there are some instants that I encounter more frequently in limited. I'm not a big limited player, but I will, if I have a surplusage of play points, I'll jump into a limited queue. <laughs> in my last limited queue, I, I went 3-0. Uh, the thing about, the thing about the limited instance is that the ones I like are the ones that are like righteousness. They have a big bombastic effect, and it's simple and narrow. The ones I dislike are the ones that are like multifaceted, and do like weird, you know, like, <laughs> things simultaneously, I dislike those. You know, I don't want to like, t- like, tap the creature and get them, and it doesn't untap for a turn, and something gets minus one, minus o. Oh, you know, like, no, don't give me that nonsense. Just give me something bold and direct, <laughs> right? I mean, because I think it just feels better and more fun and exciting. Like giant growth effects are exciting and fun. Maybe they're overpowered, but there are ways of calibrating that, making them uncommon instead of common, making them rare like this, right? And I, anyway, I I like this kind of effect. I think it's fun to play. I've definitely played this card. It's hard to angle yourself in a situation and construct it where this can be great, but in limited, it's just great fun. Yeah. Yeah, I think I agree. Uh, I enjoy a good combat trick in limited, and I think it makes for good limited play well, uh, across the board if it's properly balanced and, and integrated into this, a set's themes and power. Actually, that's kind of what I'm saying, is that I like combat effects i I dislike combat tricks (laughs) well i think i'm using the word to encompass everything you're you're describing i guess is what i i should have said beforehand but uh yeah i agree with your summation though all right the so from one incredibly simple card in righteousness to one incredibly complicated card in rock hydra 
In alpha, rock hydra is XRR, summon hydra, put X plus one plus one counters, parentheses, heads, on <laughs> hydra. Each point of damage hydra suffers destroys one head unless R is spent, and that's a capital R. During upkeep, <laughs> new heads may be grown for RRR a piece, and oh it's a zero God. zero. Jeez. <laughs> Okay. Now, this card has the, the, the most colloquial language per word of any card in Alpha, <laughs> and it's hilarious. <laughs> There's just so much of this card's effect that has no, no basis in the rules at all. <laughs> Let's just be clear up front that a lot of the templating was corrected in beta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the beta edition is significantly different. <laughs> Um, but it, the beta edition still has heads in parentheses, <laughs> which, is, which is awesome. <laughs> the parens, yeah. <laughs> oh, my lord. Um, I love this. Okay, this is some quality top-down design, right? I mean, obviously, this is just a multi-headed Hydra that has as many heads as mana you put into it, and you can like maintain it by pumping more mana in it to, to either prevent heads from dying or growing new heads. Yeah, very scalable. In concept, it's, it's not that hard to understand, but the number of levers on this card is hilarious. <laughs> it's true. The initial X. Interact. Yeah. Um, a couple things I want to point out, just, just as kind of um, process-based, you know, Dotting the eyes, crossing T's. Uh, number mm-hmm. one, this is a this is a card that actually gains counters. So uh, plus one, plus one. Yep. yep. Like and and so it functionally is zero zero. But this is also a card, and we've had a n- mentioned a number of them that has variable power and toughness. Uh, Clockwork Beast, Gaia's mm-hmm. Liege. Uh, this what else? Um, nightmare. Yeah, nightmare. So this is another example of that. God, it almost seems like there's almost one in each color. I just rattled those off. Um, uh, the other thing, Kevin, is that um, the the red X spells are very prominent in the red color pie, and it's cool that they, you know, both they got something top down that's nifty in terms of creature, but also, you know, yeah. they're able to turn that into a creature, which is nice. Um, so just wanted to point those things out. The other thing, though, is that it, much like Clockwork Beast, you can get the power back, you know. Um, and I think this is, you know, we talked about the limitations of Clocker Beats. I think this is a better limitation to have, right? Because <laughs> it's not just from attacking, it's from damage it suffers. So and it's very scalable. Definitely. So. Yeah. It's far more powerful than Clockwork Beast. It scales up, scales down if you want it to. And with sufficient mana, you can invest once, but then get more out of it in the long run, right. which is something you can't ever really do with a Clockwork Beast. So you could play this. You could play this for four mana as a two-two, and then every mm-hmm. upkeep add add heads. Yep, which is not that something is, you could do with Clockwork Beast. Has yeah, unbound that is definitely a valid play pattern. Yeah, and it doesn't suffer at all from just pure attacking and blocking. Like, yes, it 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 is suffers from damage, which is relevant. But if your opponent has like a Will of the Wisp or a, a, a Wall of Stone, right, you're not getting punished by mixing it up with this creature at all. As soon as they put some power on the board, then you have to weigh the the benefits of attacking into that power. But the simple truth is, is like a Clockwork Beast, you get punished just every time you interact, basically. Whereas this doesn't have quite that limitation. And you can sink some mana into this, let it shrink small, and then regrow it over time a bit and get back into it, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I, I think this card is a really fun design. I mean, it's... And, and it has a lot of... um. It, 
the direction that this is going in from a design standpoint shifted into green over time with things like saprlings and hydras and oozes, right? Green really owns this whole uh, trading, trading damage and trading other kinds of combat interactions for changes in the creature and especially changes that you can influence with mana or something like that. Green really owns this. That's a good point. But this lives on in magic today. Before you go go on that, I just want to make the point in terms of the art, uh, and then we can talk about the lin- the lineage. The mm-hmm. the art. There's two ways you could have gone with this. You could have done kind of Melissa Benson, beautiful hyper rendered art, or you <laughs> Jeff Mengus, or you go the Jeff Mengus route, right? Which is it's blockier, thicker line, but the representation is more powerful and forceful in some ways. You get a I, I don't know. I really like I really like the art. I, I just really <laughs> like Jeff Mengus art. I don't know why. Um, it's cool. I can tell. Yeah, it's. I I don't know that he he got all the kind of uh, sight lines correct. It almost looks like like the figure and you know the the miniature in the foreground is like isn't quite facing the Hydra, but but that figure is really cool looking. It's like a little. Yeah. It's like a little uh um crossbows and catapults figurine almost. It's really <laughs> cool looking. I like that reference, crossbows and catapults. That makes me want to play that game. <laughs> <laughs> Along with some Raging River. <laughs> so you were, you yeah, were going to say. I, I don't want to belabor the point too much, but the first several Hydras in Magic were mono-red. Rock Hydra, Balduvian Hydra, Spitting Hydra, Molten Hydra. The first four <laughs> awesome. were mono-red. Actually, the first five, excuse me, Ancient Hydra was the fifth one. Then we got Phytohydra in Ravnica. Now, you might note that the, the sixth Hydra being in Ravnica means that they were pretty sparse in the early days. Alpha, Ice Age, Stronghold, Legacy, Nemesis. That's pretty sparse for Hydras, right? Phytohydra being in Ravnica was a turning point then. That was a green-white Hydra, but then the next few were green. You get Apocalypse Hydra in Confluence, then you get a bunch of green ones, then you get Savageborn Hydra in... What set is this? What the heck set is this? In Dragon's Maze... And then after that, they're just all green. The last like two dozen Hydras have been just mono green, with the exception of Bioessence Hydra, which is blue green. So Hydras at some in the early game they were mono red. The first five of them are red, not a green one to be seen. And then at some point around Ravnica, R and D decided the Hydras were green. And after that, they're almost entirely green, with a couple of gold exceptions. It's kind of weird. I don't really understand why that is, but um, well, there you have it. The history is pretty clear. Hydras by today's standards have a lot of things in common with rock hydra. They usually they typically have scaling power and toughness, like an X in the mana cost or something Ancient that hydra causes them to scale. But, right? No, but I'm talking about modern okay, modern hydras. It. Yeah. And and or they have some other way to to grow or shrink, like some condition that causes them to have variable power and toughness, like uh well, Mana Gorger Hydra is is a, to use a vintage example, right? Mana Gorger Hydra doesn't have a scaling size in terms of mana cost but it definitely grows as the game evolves there's a lot of hydras like that so it's been a while since we saw a red hydra the last red hydra was the one from dragon's mage maze uh savage born hydra the it the update to rock hydra though i think a very real meaningful update was in ice age and balduvian hydra it's the same mana cost xrr it's a zero one though that comes in with X plus one plus zero counters on it. And then it has a simpler mechanic where it says remove a plus zero plus one counter from Balduvian Hydra, prevent the next one damage that would be dealt to Balduvian Hydra this turn, 
which is kind of just a preventative fl- take on the if it takes damage, you remove a head instead, right? Yeah. And then it has then it has the simpler implementation of RRR colon put a plus one plus one counter on Balduvian Hydra, activate this ability only during your upkeep. So it's definitely intended to be Rock Hydra, right, in very real ways. Mechanically, it matches almost exactly. It's just that it doesn't have big toughness. So it's a little bit more in flavor for red in having just big power. But it also doesn't have all the baggage of when it takes damage, you do this or you pay one to prevent (laughs) it. It's it's a much simpler implementation. Well, we expect that things evolve in in a direction that is improvement over time, I would hope. (laughs) Yes, yes, completely agree. Uh, Steve, do you have experience playing with Rock Hydra? It was, it's a rare no. in Alpha, and I cast I, it a couple times in the early days, but not much. It's interesting. As we've gone through this set, I think I've realized that I've probably played with every white card in the set, just about. <laughs> and I've <laughs> played with almost none of a lot of the red... I mean, much many fewer of the red cards and, and black cards. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I must have in my early days been really into white magic. Um no, I have not played this, but I am definitely looking forward to playing this at some point in a league deck, fitting it in somewhere, because the scalability is just too cool. <laughs> it's very cool. At the same time, it doesn't compare very well to other efficient creatures from a mana uh, curve standpoint, you're right. right? Yeah, 5 Even mana, 3-3, like, 6 um, three, three, mana, 4-4. Four, four. Yeah. I think the... So keep going. I mean, so, like, well, let's just compare. So we got Dragon Welt, 3-3, three, three, Flyer... Sorry. A 2-3. Two, three. Two, three, yeah, 2-3 flyer <laughs> yeah. for 4. Um, so this has the same power as a Dragon Whelp on curve at, at, at 4 mana, right? But as you know, Dragon Whelp fire breeds a little bit, yeah, and so it's going to hit finisher. for 4 and 5 yeah, reliably, whereas you'd have to pump 3 mana into this Hydra next turn just to hit for 3, and it's on the ground. And if they block, the, the Hydra shrinks, right, in a way that no other creature really does. <laughs> So all signs point to this thing is just not a good, efficient use of your mana. The only reason you would want to play Rock Hydra over something like a, a Shivan, especially, is just if you had a big burst of mana, right? Or if you had, um, you know, if, if you got some big engine going where you had mana flare and gauntlets of might, right? And you could make a 10-10 Hydra in one turn. That's a slightly better use of your <laughs> yeah. mana than on a Shivan, yeah. I guess. Yeah, the mana flare deck with this is, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So you can get more bang for your buck than that, and it's um, but it's all contextual, right? If if they have anything on the ground as a blocker, the Shivan is just a far superior card. So I think this is just another one of those cases where, from a design set design standpoint, not every card is meant to be compared to just whatever the apex of that you know slot of card is, right? This card is compares unfavorably in most cases to a Shivan Dragon, but you weren't expected to have access to. 10 shivens or whatever to build your mono red deck <laughs> you're meant to be forced because of the format of the game to exercise a little bit of variety it is worth noting that this good analysis. if you can if you can pump this up to a 4-4 or even a 5-5 then when yeah. you're in combat access to significant red mana makes this thing just live through every other creature almost in the format and right. Also, this this will just destroy a Sarah Angel, and if you pump four mana into it, this thing just lives. Yeah. Also, depending on how much red you have, you can add multiple heads each upkeep. Yeah. Totally. No, I think so, I think you make an interesting point that that it the base power and toughness is does not compare favorably with you know frankly an Iron Claw Orc. <laughs> you know. <laughs> right. I mean, but 
But the point is that it has huge upside. So late game, it's real big. And over time, you can grow it. So you can still yeah. engage it in combat and invest into it to continue to you know make it larger. Yeah. Comparing something to a Shivan and calling it unfavorable is is a little bit disingenuous <laughs> just because <laughs> yeah. you know Shivan's arguably one of the best creatures in Alpha. But but if you compare this to anything less than Shivan, like say, I don't know, fire elemental, right? If this is compared to a fire elemental, well then this has a lot of upside. Fire Elemental can tussle with a Sarah Angel, but they're gonna trade. Whereas this Rock Hydra, all things being equal, is gonna survive. And that's meaningful. Right. It might take a lot of red mana to keep it around, but hey, you're keeping it around. That's a form of card advantage, I guess. Worth noting that as much as me might like, Rock Hydra didn't live beyond revised. It was actually in as another one of those cards that was in summer, but then didn't make it till to fourth edition, and so it hasn't been printed in paper since revised. That makes me sad. Yeah, I agree. There's plenty of other cards that we've reviewed here now that that definitely outlived their usefulness. Far, yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, why is feedback or yeah, whatever that power leak in so many reprints? <laughs> right. Yeah, I like me some rock hydra. Stay tuned for more thrilling limited edition adventures in the next part of our episode 100 spectacular on so many insane plays. This is not safe for the game! <laughs> <laughs>